This is exactly right. Listen, we're all SVU fans. We love a family drama. We love a mystery to solve. And you got to get hooked into a story with the details. You need the visuals. You need the storylines with the twists and the turns. And that is what June's Journey has and more. June's Journey is a mobile mystery game that follows June Parker, a daring young girl on a quest to uncover the truth about her sister's murderer. Dun, 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 dun. This is your chance to test your detective skills because you'll play the game as June herself. The game is filled with all these beautiful detailed scenes from the 20s, like lavish estates and gardens. And of course, little hidden clues are everywhere. There's twists, turns, catchy tunes. It all takes you deep deeper into this storyline. And if you play well enough, you can make it into the detective club. And there you can chat with other players and even compete with or against them, which is pretty exciting. And you never know which character might be a villain. Shocking family secrets will be revealed. And can you crack the case? Find out as you escape this world and dive into June's world of mystery, murder, and romance. Okay, love that. And guess what? It's all just one tap away. Discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. That's June's Journey. Download the game for free on iOS and Android. Hi, I'm Erin Welsh. And I'm Erin Almond Updike, and we're the hosts of This Podcast Will Kill You on Exactly Right. We're back with our seventh season, which is bigger and better than ever. Because guess what? We're now a weekly show. This season, we're tackling everything from long COVID to norovirus, from the supplement industry to IVF, and so, so much more. New episodes drop every single Tuesday. Follow This Podcast Will Kill You wherever you get your podcasts. Of the Law & Order franchises, SVU is considered especially watchable. We are the amateur detectives who kind of investigate the vicious felonies these episodes are based on. These are our stories. Dun-dun! I love that. <laughs> Hi, everyone. Hello. Welcome to That's Messed Up. I'm Kara Clank. I'm Lisa Traeger. We talk SVU, crimes, interviews. We've got it all, baby. Yes. LA's hottest club. And it truly is. This <laughs> town sucks. No. Uh, LA's hottest club is That's Messed Up. <laughs> <laughs> We're so thrilled um, that we have another week, a uh, jam-packed episode. Am I scared for how you're going to react to this episode? I am. I can't lie. <laughs> Not going to lie. Just everybody I, go easy on Lisa. She's really just trying to look at everything um, with a critical eye, and I respect <laughs> that. Yeah. I would like everyone to know I have had dozens of you reach out to me telling me that it's okay to fire my therapist, and I want to let you know that I did do it. I did over text. Tell my therapist, by the way, you missed my appointment yesterday, and I think I'm going to be pausing therapy for now. I didn't give her, like, a full rundown. She did try to come back and act like it was my fault. I did write her back and say, please look at the text messages above, and you'll see that you're wrong. And she was like, oh, my God, I'm so sorry. And then I just said, thanks for, like, thanks for understanding. And I just moved on. So I did not give full feedback, which a lot of you said I could do and would be the right thing to do. I couldn't do it. But I did not ghost. So... You know, and she wrote back and said, here, if you want to start here when you need me or I'm here when you want to start back up. So it was like a very clean, 
respectful break. And you probably felt so free after. Yes. Yeah, I was just talking to someone where it's like, you can fuck up, but uh, you have to just admit when you're wrong and apologize. Mm -hmm. And it seems like your therapist was not able to do that task. (laughs) So should she be a therapist? (laughs) I got a lot of people talking about my gluten. What I've learned is I have to stop talking about my physical and mental like health ailments on the podcast because all of your advice is so lovely and great, but I will never do anything to improve my life. Okay, (laughs) so I'm like, I have these issues and then I'm like, I have it. And then you guys, well, you can fix it. And I go, no, thank you. So I'm wasting your time, my time. So I think I have to stop talking about, because I'll go to the doctor. The doctor will give me what will help me and then I won't do it. So, you know, one step at a time in personal growth and one day I'll get to, will you just put this lotion on? So, (laughs) (laughs) but thank you. And then I'm eating croissants on Instagram live. It's like, I, but I have cut back and I don't have bumps. So whatever. Okay. So someone tweeted this and I loved it and I wish, um, I just wrote it down, but I want to give them credit. Maybe we'll post about it. But what would each detective order at Taco Bell? Of SVU. Yeah. And I thought that was such a fun game. Did you see someone wrote that to us? No, I didn't. Maybe we'll play it at a later time. It's a lot to throw at you, Kara, and you're not even as familiar with the menu. Yeah, I'm not. And there's so many options, but I just, we could also do a different type of place. Uh, But like, I like the idea of picking what our detectives would order at different fast food chains. No, that is fun. That is fun. I'm trying to think. I know it's too much too soon. It is early. We're, We're wild women. I mean, I'd love to hear a couple of, throw a couple at me. I think I kind of understand the difference between like a, a chimichanga and a gordita and like a Supreme Rock. For sure, tra- but I didn't even, Supreme. I wrote it down to talk about, but I didn't even plan. But right now I'm thinking Benson goes for a Crunchwrap Supreme when she needs a real treat. Like I think she goes for that. I think if it's quick on the go, she might do the protein menu or get like a simple, like a hard and soft, like a soft shell, hard shell taco with chicken Mm. meal. Cause I think she, I think she keeps it tight. I think Marushka watches what she eats. Yeah. Rollins doesn't cause Rollins forgets to eat. And then she just eats a giant chicken sandwich. That's Rollins. (laughs) That's why she's so erratic. We have friends like that where they're such a bitch. And then they, we realize they haven't eaten all day and it's like, okay, well that Rollins at 3am smoking a cig at a casino blackjack table going hit me. Like, I mean, yes, I had cigarettes last night. Oh, you did. (laughs) Yeah. The moment you said it, I was like, Oh, I had two cigarettes. I sure did. I sure did. You probably have two cigarettes. Like, a month, right? You don't smoke a lot. No, but I feel it. Like, yeah. but I actually don't feel it today. No, I just the moment. Yeah, I don't know. It's like, is it a moral failure? No, I loved it. I loved smoking the cigarettes. <laughs> it felt so good. <laughs> but when you're hanging out with someone late into the night, if they're smoking cigarettes, you're gonna smoke a cigarette. Yeah, I look, or not. Some of you, you know, might not. I'm from. I'm a. I'm a former big smoker. I personally can't dabble because I know I'll slide right back into hiding packs from Jared. Like that, that will happen within weeks. Did you quit when you started dating Jared or did you quit before you met? I was quit when I met Jared. I had quit. And then I started a little bit because he, he smoked and I was like, oh, I mean, like, do you want to go outside? You know, like whatever (laughs) we were dating. And then I fully quit for five years soon into us dating. I quit for five years. And then my bachelorette party is where my friends started forcing me to smoke cigarettes. They were like, you've been quit for five years. Who cares? And then I I sloped down that slope pretty quick. And I was buying packs, hiding them, sneaking out. 
Yeah. Very Carrie Bradshaw of you. Yeah. You're Carrie and Misty. How do you feel about yes. that? <laughs> but I'm quit now like years without really any cheating. Like I cheated at a bachelorette party that you and I were both at and I took two drags and I was like, this was a mistake because I was extremely drunk. And I was like, this was a bad idea. And then I, like, I really barely ever cheated. I think we had the same thing at that bachelorette party where we went so hard Friday that Saturday I could yeah. barely even look at liquor. Yeah. Like, I was mostly eating those little Munster Hawaiian bread. <laughs> I remember having full conversations with you at, like, the club because you and I were, like, sober. Yeah. <laughs> There and then I no had way. to, and then I had to escort one of our friends home because she was too blacked. <laughs> yeah, and I procured the Molly, and then wouldn't take it. And I people did try to bully me into taking it, and I was like, no, yeah, <laughs> I'm not in the mood for Molly. Oh, someone did write us a while ago saying that they don't like that we promote drug use. Well, get with it, bitch. How do you like <laughs> that? We do drugs here. We do drugs on this podcast <laughs> in this house. Black Lives Matter and we we do do recreational drugs. (laughs) (laughs) Drugs. In Um, this house, Black Lives Matter, we do recreational drugs. (laughs) (laughs) Let's get one of those posters. What else do we do? And and we watch SVU. Okay, so I met someone new yesterday and they talked about SVU in a way I didn't like to the point where I went, I don't think this is working. I don't like the vibe. And I, I ended the hangout very early. Ah, They were just talking about SVU in a way where I was like, oh, I don't, I don't think this is going to work. Just being like, isn't that funny? And it's like, no, it's actually heartbreaking. So I don't think we're going to. That's not funny at all. They were like talking about the show in like a flippant way, kind of. Yeah. And it was like, it was Carisi's family. And it was like, oh, Carisi's dumb sister and that fat brother-in-law and all of that. And he was like, and she was like laughing. And I I was like, um, yeah, I care about Carisi and his family. And and I like that Carisi's brother-in-law was getting sexually assaulted. And it's important that we tell stories about men getting sexually assaulted too. Yeah, it was wild. It was just like, I'm out. I'm out. I can't have you talking about SVU in this way. <laughs> Wasn't it Susan Sharon? It was Susan Sharon. It was That's Susan another Sharon. thing. It was like Susan Sharon gave us a performance and <laughs> it was a great episode and it's about people trying their best and getting out of the system and it wasn't funny and there were funny moments in that episode. So I I was just like, I gotta, this isn't gonna work. Wow. <laughs> if you are somebody who has also kicked someone out of your house or life because of their views on SVU, please DM us. I, there we were other moments. There were of other, course. like it was, uh, 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 and then that was the one that was like, okay. you gotta go. Yeah. You gotta go. <laughs> And I think our list, we have to keep this short. And I think our listeners will appreciate this. Um, Outside shoes touched my bread spread. And I had to go, get your shoes off my bed. And that was a big. It's crazy. That's when I was like, that was a moment. It was just like um, a lot of moments. You got to ask people if you're even allowed to wear shoes into their house, to their floor, let alone. I know, but I live in a room, so it's hard. It's hard. I live in a room. So. Well, sure, but you. You're just in. The bedspread. I'm just saying the bedspread is uh, 10 levels away from the floor and should never even be approached. It's a problem. Well, listen. Let's get into we this. We do have classic. a supersized episode today. Lots of info. So we're going to... I know you guys are like, talk as long as you want. But truly, this is a big one. So we're going to keep that episode... Because we have a short. famous crime. We have an outstanding guest. Yeah. And we have a classic episode. That is a three-hour trifecta. So... Yeah. 
<laughs> love you guys. Love you, I mean love it. Love you, miss you, mean it. All right. This is Tragedy, season five, episode one. The season five opener, everyone. The show's really hitting its stride. And I read that this episode marks SVU's move um, to Tuesday nights at 10 o'clock from Friday nights. And Friday nights is usually where they send TV shows to die. So I think they probably started SVU on Friday nights because of like the subject matter. And now season five, it's kicking ass and they're moving it to Tuesday nights where it can really pick up some fans. And obviously I'm not talking about TGIF for Friday nights. Yeah. Um, Because if I was thinking that silently here... I know all of you were like, yeah. excuse no. me, Sabrina to the Teenage Witch. No, 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 no. Like family programming, obviously huge. But like if you have a show, a favorite show and it moves to Fridays, start saying your goodbyes. It's it's probably getting canceled. Um, so we open on a 911 operator taking a call. She can't really hear anyone on the other end of the line at first, but then she hears an altercation where a guy's like telling a woman to start the car. She's crying. They can tell that she's probably dropped her cell phone and that she's getting carjacked. And um, there's no location, only a cell phone number. And it is a 917 number. And I would just like to say that I always deeply coveted a 917 number when I moved to New York because that was the first exchange after 212 that you could get. And I got 646, which is, you know, it's the third one. It's just not the second one. Um, And so we hear the guy say... I'm not going to kill you. I've got something else in mind. And it's like, okay. And then the operator goes, sweet mother of God, it's the carjack rapist. And that's credits. Maybe the fastest credits we've ever gotten to. It's one minute, one full minute. Yeah, but I think the older ones were shorter. They've gotten yeah. longer and longer. And yeah, longer. yeah, yeah. Like now the, you can go to four locations. <laughs> I'm writing a page and a half of notes before we're hitting credits these days. <laughs> yeah. Um, but then it's really great. The end of these credits, it's like such a good crew. It's the whole original crew. Plus, I count Ice T as original, uh, and then Huang and Cabot. So it's a really fun, really fun crew. So uh, Act One, we open on our buddy Ruben Morales, aka Taru, aka Joel De La Fuente, and he is playing the call for Benson and Stabler and uh, they just are like bending us over and giving us the exposition as usual. They're like, we've been after this guy for a month. He blitzed his first four victims from behind. Then he knocks them out, rapes them and steals their car. Something must have gone wrong. Like, why does this, why did, we haven't found the woman or there hasn't, you know. So they're like, can we enhance the voice? And it's like, not really because that doesn't exist. But Teru's like, I'll try and see what I can do. And they're like, what about location? And they're able to find a couple towers that pinged off of, but it only narrows it down to 30 blocks. And Stabler's like, well, if the city had enhanced 911 for cell phones, we'd know exactly where this happened, which is sort of shading NYC. But I'm also assuming that they get this, like at least a season or two later, because we've seen hundreds of episodes where they track a cell phone as it's moving across the city. So anyway, they do find one good piece of information, which is that the cell phone belonging to the victim is one of 18 cell phones leased to the Studio Arts League. So on the next scene, we open up with the legend, Magda from Sex and the City, Lynn Cohen. Very exciting. And yeah, and she's a a wonderful actress who has been on two episodes of SVU and died right before the pandemic in February of 2020. And honestly, I'm jealous of her. Um, no, anyway. Take that back. <laughs> <laughs> Just Fucking saying. She psycho. got to miss out on COVID. That's kind of nice. No. Um, 
She, no, she's, and her other SVU episodes, iconic. She's like a meatball maven murderer. It's yeah. Like, so it, yeah. it's the best But episode. here she's like this fun, easy breezy, like art lady, clearly has like a second home in Santa Fe. Like it's very fun and she's got like long flowing hair. And she's explaining like what the artist collectives, what the artists in this like whole collective do. And she tells them that the cell phone belongs to Annika Bergeron, who's a painter. And they're like, okay, we need her address. And she's like, okay, she lived by Thompson Square Park. And then she drops the bomb that Annika is home on bed rest because she's pregnant and due in two weeks with a high-risk pregnancy. Dun-dun. Pretty crazy. Okay. So they go to her apartment and the super is all very, when you're here, your family. Like, he's (laughs) like, we all look out for each other. I checked on Annika last night at nine o'clock. I've never heard of this building. I don't know where this building exists, where everybody's looking out for each other and the super comes to check on you, but here we are. Um, He also says she has a car. It's a big black Tahoe. And I really hope they get to the bottom of that because that's an absolutely untenable car to have in New York City, unless you drive for a car service. And Benson and Stabler are like, why would she go out? Maybe she got a call. Dump the Luds. Could that have been an alternative name for our podcast? Dump the the Luds. Luds. (laughs) I just love the phrase. But what does Luds mean? I don't get it. The Luds, I think Luds, hold on, hold on. Luds stands for something. It stands for like local usage details. That would fit our podcast. Yeah. We we talk about details all the time. <laughs> Local and global. Yeah. Dump the Luds, an SVU podcast. Okay. If anyone ever comes for our name. Um, so the super says he hasn't seen any guy around the apartment since Daniel Lester moved out, her ex-boyfriend. He was a carpenter. And in true SVU fashion, this super knows exactly where his tenant's ex-boyfriend works and where <laughs> that is located. <laughs> so... It's like, oh, he works at uh, this place that's a fancy Granville construction, whatever. So they go talk to Daniel. He looks concerned. Uh, he says him and Annika are not in touch much, random emails. Like, he knows nothing about a baby. And then in walks quite the pair. It's Kelly Martin of Life Goes On fame, uh, who I'm sure you've seen in something else. I mean, she's in tons of stuff. And Shirley Knight, who has 182 fucking credits on IMDb. She is so prolific. You've seen her in something for sure. But what I recognize her from always, it always is in my mind for some reason, was a 1995 TV movie about the McMartin family called Indictment, the McMartin Trial. Do you remember hearing about the McMartin family? No, I was just about to ask, what what is that? They ran a daycare and they got accused of molesting the children in the daycare and they didn't do anything. It was a full witch hunt. It was one of those things that SVU's actually done it before where the kids were all just talking to their parents and picking up cues from their parents and their parents were like, didn't something happen and didn't this happen? And so all these kids started saying that something happened and like nothing had happened. This was just like a family and their lives got ruined and it was like a full, huge case in the 90s, I think. I think the the movies were all in the 90s, like the TV movies about it, but she was a member of the family. Very children's hour. Yes, and I remember her so well from this movie that I watched when I was, you know, like a kid. So anyway, this woman, Shirley Knight, I recognize from this episode because it is that iconic of a performance. And I just love that she looks wealthy. Yeah, we have not mentioned that either. Like this episode to me is like top 10 iconic episodes. Like I always think of this episode. I've seen it probably at least 10 times. But it was cool to rewatch it, especially now as someone who has given birth. So we'll get into that later. Um, anyway, 
These two blow in and they are clearly mother and daughter. They come into the room. The mom is blathering about flowers. So obviously there's some kind of wedding in the works and that we are introduced to them as Rose and Melinda Granville. Melinda, the younger, is, is Kelly Martin, is Daniel's fiance. And Rose Granville, the mother, is his boss. So she owns this, uh, you know, lucrative construction contracting company or whatever it is. Daniel gives the cops the contact info for Laura, who is Annika's sister who lives in Jersey, okay? Now they're talking to Laura, and she's like, Annika doesn't own a car. The Tahoe is mine. And I'm like, okay, that makes much more sense that a person from New Jersey would own a Tahoe, not a person living in Manhattan. And then here is where I piece together that the sister, Laura, is played by an actress named Marissa Ryan, who plays Abby Bernstein, one of my all-time favorite characters in Wet Hot American Summer. What a blessing. It's amazing. Um, Yeah, one of the best movies ever. And I wonder if her and Maloney went down memory lane, you know? That's so true, yes. That's so true. I wonder if they hugged, if they ate some brown rice together during lunch. Like, I wonder what the vibe was. Well, yeah, okay, so Wet Hot would have come out... 2001. Ah, okay, so... Two years later, they're reunited. I wonder if he got her the job. I wonder if he's like, there's this great girl, Abby Bernstein. I'm sure that it was like a really bonding set. Like, I, mm. you know, and everyone was making each other laugh. It was so many, like, young people about to pop. Elizabeth Banks, Paul Wright. Like, I, it just was, I bet they became friends. I'm, yeah. I wish we could find out how they interacted on this set together, but... It's exciting. Well, I'm a, I just like love this character in the movie so much. Like my sister and I and my friends from camp, like we always go, don't go. Like it's like <laughs> this line she has. Like, and like, you know, Ken Marino's always like, wait for me, Abby Bernstein. So like this is if you watch that movie, this is a fun little Easter egg for you. Um So basically, Abby Bernstein slash Annika's sister, Laura, is telling Benson and Stabler that the father of the baby is a one-night stand. He's not in the picture. And she's like, Annika's like so excited to be a mom. This baby's all she ever talks about. So yikes, we're not like, this isn't like a great picture that's being painted here. Um, Back at the precinct, Ice is definitely looking at the glass half dead. He's like, yeah, maybe the guy freaked when she was pregnant, killed her, dumped her body, and took the car to a chop shop. And they're like, (laughs) okay, Finn, let's proceed as if she's alive. Um, And then Annika's OBGYN shows up to, like, raise the stakes through the roof. And he's like, Annika cannot deliver that baby vaginally. She has placenta previa, which is where the placenta blocks the birth canal. This girl needs to have a C-section. And if she goes into labor, it would basically kill both of them. Okay, so now the tension is high. This is one of those countdown episodes that I don't think you like, but this is where we are. I like them. I just, the ones I hate are only when they go to talk to an old man who committed crimes oh, and they yeah. have to find their, <laughs> his secrets. You know, I don't like yeah. those. Before I he dies this. or before the statute of limitations runs out. Yeah. A pregnant woman in distress, my favorite. <laughs> <laughs> so they get a call that Morales got something off the tape and uh, they are they rush to Taru and figure that out. He basically has isolated all the noises on the call and figured out from like the sounds of honks and the sounds of turn signals and noises that they are somewhere by the FDR, which is the um, highway that runs up the east side of Manhattan. 
So now they basically are at some area by the FDR that they think looks like a good place to ditch a car. Barnaby the dog picks up a scent and there's track marks on the ground like there was another car there. But none of this matches uh, the MO of the carjack rapist. And also, where is the car? Like if, if she was taken into another car, where is her car? And they're like, maybe it got towed. There's a towing sign right there that says no parking anytime. So now, yes, we're at the impound. The car was towed. Um, and Stabler's talking about how this might be a copycat as he, you know, expertly jimmies the window open because Stabler knows how to do everything. So Benson says, somebody targeted Annika, called her, lured her out of her apartment, kidnapped her. This was all planned. When they get into the car, the driver's seat, sadly, is soaked in blood. Um, and CSU technician Judith Cyper is there, whose niece listens to our podcast. What up, girl? And she's walking us through all the forensics. And she's basically like, okay, so what happened was Annika drove the car while the perp directed her from the passenger seat. So he put his hand on the back of her headrest, but he was wearing gloves. He's kind of smarter than your average dum-dum, and there are no prints. And she says she'll have more info in a couple of hours, but this can't wait. In walks CSU technician Bert Trevor, a.k.a. Daniel Sunjata, explaining that the blood is Annika's, that there's no amniotic fluid, so she's not in labor, but with the amount of blood that she has already lost, she's got 36 hours until her and the baby both die. Put 36 hours up on the clock. So, tough news to hear out of such a hot mouth, but here we are moving forward. I mean, uh, Melinda Warner, all the CSU techs, their whole job is like... uh, to lead the case for, like, give a big clue. But his, for some reason, are the most magical of all. I don't know. He's he's usually just comes in, drops a, a bomb, bomb. <laughs> and leaves. And maybe I'm paying closer attention because he's so hot, but, like, his scenes to me always seem, like, the news is always high stakes exciting or a spin or a tri- I don't know. Yeah. I, I like, um, I like Bert. Bert yeah. Tra- and remember, um, if you guys remember Joel De La Fuente... He said that when he joined the cast that he was supposed to play Bert Trevor and they changed the name to accommodate his But vibe. somebody <laughs> obviously still had a boner for the name Bert Trevor. Yeah. So they brought in another guy to play Bert Trevor. Um, so, which is, Bert Trevor is a very, like, TV name, I feel like. But, um, so the top of Act 2, Cragen's like, what's the motive? Like, what's going on here? They're all, like, they're kind of teasing out, like, what the story is here, like, what could be going on. And Cragen goes, pregnancy elevates a woman's risk of intimate partner violence just in case you needed any more proof that being a woman is Fucking awful, everybody. Okay. This is the information that we're getting from Cragen that when you're pregnant. Yeah, I thought people just like cheat on their pregnant wives. They didn't realize they start fucking hitting and murdering them. Oh, yeah. I think so for sure. Um, so Liv suggests that maybe she got snatched for her baby, but like still, there's no way that somebody who was on the prowl for a baby just stumbled upon Annika on the street at three in the morning you know, ready to pop. So uh, basically, the LUDs have been dumped. And at 3.16 a.m., Annika got a call from a payphone a couple blocks from her apartment. And then uh, that was 15 minutes before the 911 call. So this is all matching up. So then she made an outgoing call to a car service. They said they sent a car for her for an out-of-town fare, but that Annika never showed up. So she also signed online and went to Map It Now, um, which is an LOL name for MapQuest. And then she looked up driving directions to Passaic Hospital and Passaic, New Jersey is where her sister lives. So she obviously 
called the car service, then thought, oh, I could get there faster if I drove, and then just decided to like map quest it and head on out to Jersey herself. So now they've brought the sister in. Abby Bernstein is back, and she's like denying that she had anything to do with this. And she also confesses that she hasn't talked to Annika in a few weeks because they got into a fight, even though she had previously told them that she had just talked to her a few days ago. So it turns out Sissy's had some money troubles. Annika's been giving her half her paychecks. I love my sister, but I don't know. Um, The credit cards are maxed out. Bankruptcy looks like it's definitely in the cards for this woman. And she says, look, my ex was a con artist. He ran up all these bills. Then he bounced. Why would I hurt Annika if Annika's like helping me? And she's like, maybe your ex was like, oh, let's squeeze a little bit more money out of Annika. And she's like, he's locked up in Arizona. It's not him. And then Liv's like, all right, spill it. Who's the father of the baby? And she's like, I promise I wouldn't tell. Okay, back and forth. Okay, it's Daniel Lester. All right. We're not casting Kelly Martin and Shirley Knight for no reason, everyone. They weren't just like gone in the first act of the show. They're back. So they go to talk to Daniel, who's walking around with an open robe, just shirtless in front of the cops. Uh, And he's like, I have an alibi. I was in Boston. Why would I kill her? And they're like, because she's carrying your child and you're about to marry another woman. And he's like, it's my baby. Like, he has no idea. But you, you do believe him. So they're basically like, you guys broke up 14 months ago. She's eight months pregnant. Clearly, there was some post-breakup dabbling. And he's like, I went over to pick up some tax receipts. We had a drink, then another drink. We fucked. Like, it was like just whatever. We just laughed about it. The reason they broke up originally was that they fought about money. Annika thought he was selling out because she thought being a starving artist was cool. And he was like, peace, I want money. And uh, they were like... So does your fiancé know about this, like, one-night indiscretion you had? And he's like, no, but I'm going to have to tell her. And then cut to Melinda, his fiancé, Kelly Martin, in a full silk nighty and matching robe. And she's like, you don't have to tell me. So now, back at the precinct, Benson and Stabler are like, this dude could have easily used this Boston trip as an alibi and come back to New York. It's a four-hour trip. He could have gotten rid of Annika so that she doesn't fuck up his plans to marry into a rich family. And Finn's like... Guess who has a rap sheet? Daniel, assaults, disorderly conduct, etc. This guy's Whoa. got a temper. Yeah, crazy. So they walk into the precinct and there's like a full phone bank happening and Cragen's in his like Sunday best like little pins and bobs with his Navy suit. And he's like, one PP wants to go public. There's only 25 hours left to save Annika. So we got 25 hours on the clock now. Uh, they're like, we're doing a press conference. We're putting her face on the media. Annika's sister is ready to go out and cry for the cameras. So there's a whole press conference going on. You know, Carr shows up very reminiscent of uh, Bully when she shows up. <laughs> I just love that scene so much when she shows up and everyone's screaming at her. And uh, a car rolls up and it's Rose Granville, Shirley Knight, and she shows up to speak to the reporters and she's like, Granville Developers wants to offer a $100,000 reward. And she knows all about the baby and says, my daughter loves Daniel and that matters more to me than his one little, you know, fuck up. So, well, and they're wasps and I feel like wasps very like the McDougal family in Sex and the City. Like you can, like, yeah. They slide problems under the rug. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You can cheat. Well, can, like, and also, like, a reunion hookup with an ex eight months ago is different than, like, oh, he was out patronizing sex workers or doing something that would bring more shame to the family, you know? Yeah. Uh, in their words, not mine. Um, so they're back at the precinct, and Stablers goes, oh, they ripped a page from the OJ playbook posting a reward for the real killer. So he obviously thinks Daniel did it. 
and that this family is being like, we'll find the real killer. And I didn't even know that OJ did that. OJ probably put a reward up and was like, help me find the real killer, even though (laughs) I did it. Um, So Finn gets a call from a guy, like a tip from this tip line. Everybody's answering phones. And Finn gets a call from this guy. And they're like, he's like, I think this is a legit tip. He knew Daniel Lester was the father. And they're like, did you set a meet? And he's like, two hours at the pedestrian island on 6th and 4th Avenue. And the guy said, Daniel has to bring the money. Okay, so then they're strapping Daniel with a bulletproof vest, telling him what to do. Rose brings the money in, in a briefcase or whatever. And then Daniel is standing in the middle of the street, like on the pedestrian island. And I don't understand why people always think the cops are not coming to a ransom drop. Like you just, no you have to figure out a different way to hand off ransom money. There needs to be like wiring to an account in the Cayman or something like that. Like the cops are always going to be at the ransom drop. And so... Uh, this random dude starts making his way to Daniel. He's like generically sketchy looking. So he walks up to him and he goes, give me the money. And Daniel's like, where's Annika? They have a full scuffle. And then oopsie daisy, he pushes this man into the street where he proceeds to get fully mauled by a town car and pretty much dies right there on the street with Olivia Benson going, where's Annika? Where's Annika? And he's like, <clears throat> you know, gone. So, I recently saw uh, Ronnie Ching reposted this video and it was two guys in New York fighting on the subway platform uh-huh. and one guy fell into the tracks and the guy he was fighting with went, picked him up, they like hugged, he was like, thanks for saving me and then they started fighting again. <laughs> <laughs> and like in each other's faces. And he and Ronnie wrote like, this is New York in a nutshell where it's like, we might hate you, but I'll pull you out of the Yeah, I'm not going to let you get run over by a subway car. <laughs> but then... I'm going to kick care your ass. Tra- <laughs> then we're fighting again. Like, it's just a so beautiful funny. place. Yeah. So basically, at the top of Act 3, we're figuring out and this. And fuck you, Daniel. Yes. Why did you do that? Listen to the cops. Ugh. Yeah. Well, I think that they set up that he has a rap sheet to show oh. you that he's got like a temper. You know, that this mm. is like, because you before that, you have this idea that this is just this like nice guy that works at like a construction company and like, you know. Now he's like, you get the temper thing because he just pushed a guy into fucking moving traffic. Uh, And the guy's name is Greg Jessick. And he's basically muscle for hire. He like posts himself in like like crazy gun magazines being like, hey, I'll do weird jobs for you, like kill people. And then um, he was obviously paid paid to snatch Annika. And now they've got 19 hours. So they go to Jessick's apartment and Stabler's like, what a dump. And it is pretty gross. Um, And there's tons of pictures of Annika like, Tons and tons. Like, he's been surveilling her. They find, like, meticulous records of what she does every day. Like, he's been clearly tailing her and writing down her every move. And they find records of two Western Union payments that came from a bank in the Caymans. And the Caymans, unfortunately, won't tell you shit about who owns accounts. They're very... That's why people have accounts in the Caymans, because they're doing sketchy shit. So... It turns out that Jezik, they probably dumped the Luds again, and Jezik got a phone call from Sing Sing, which is where he had recently done time. So they go to... This has a lot of locations in this episode, too. It's like, we're here, we're there, we're everywhere. So they go to Sing Sing, they're talking to the warden or whatever, and he's like, the guy who called his name, Sam Marlett, he hasn't had uh, he hasn't had any visitors lately except for one, Daniel Lester. And uh, they go talk to Sam Marlett, and he's like, Daniel always looked out for me. I'll die in jail before I say one word against him. Okay. That's how you want to go. He's the Roxy Andrews of Sing Sing. Yeah. (laughs) 
so true. Um, so now they're at Daniel and Melinda's apartment and she's defending him. And Benson goes, stand by your man sounds a lot better when Tammy Wynette sings it. Okay, Benson. <laughs> um, and they find brochures for the same Cayman Bank where the payments to Jessica came from. And I'm just like, LOL, a brochure as evidence. It's just so funny to me. Like, I don't know. I just don't know why you have like a bank brochure. Like you just open your account. Why do you have a brochure? Um, but she tells them, basically they're like, there's a lot of evidence against your man here, Melinda. So where is he? And they're, she's like, he's at the new building site. So they go to the new building site where they arrest Daniel in front of his future mother-in-law and boss. And Rose is like, I'll call my lawyer. So now we're in the final act of this episode. Where the fuck is Annika? Let's get going. So what's up? The dude you just killed by accident happens to be the ex-cellmate of your best friend, Sam Marlette. Is that a coincidence? Like, what's going on? And Daniel's like, I have no idea what you're talking about. And they're like, listen, you only paid Jezik $10,000. The reward from Granville was $100,000. It was too tempting for Jezik. He wanted both payments. So Daniel's like, I never met this Jezik guy in my life. And they're like, what about these Cayman Island brochures? And he's like, (laughs) okay, you're right. I did it. And it's really weird. It's like a very weird turn. Like he just gets kind of a look on his face and he's like, you're right. I did it. But he doesn't know where he took her. He doesn't know where Jezik took her. He's like, I hired Jezik, but I don't know where where she is. And Stabler's like, I'm going to put that needle in your arm myself. And then uh, Rose Granville shows up and is vehemently defending Daniel. And she says, he loves Melinda and he isn't marrying her for her money. And he is incapable of violence. And Rose is going to try to use her connects to get Daniel off. Basically, She basically just says, like, I'm going to call my friend who went to college with the DA. Yeah, like, (laughs) so I'm rich, bitch. And so the crime lab has something. And we got Judith Seiper back on the case again. And she has found a receipt in Jezik's pocket that is soaked in blood, but cocky CSU techs do not bring you around for nothing. She used... uh, she was able to unfold it like it took her an hour to unfold it without like obliterating it. And then she used lasers to see what was on the receipt. So she just like fucks with all these nanos on the laser until she can see that it's a gas station receipt for the Rockaways. And Stabler's like, I know where that is. I used to spend my summers <laughs> up there because he is so fucking Queens. It's ridiculous. And, uh, no, I follow a couple and they, th- I think they could have afforded a house anywhere, but they got their like summer home, weekend home in the Rockaways. And I think it's genius. Yeah. Like why so close. sit in traffic to go to the Hamptons when you can take the fucking train if you really want it. So smart. On the beach, you're close to the city. You could stay and still go to work. Like I just am really impressed with um, I bet that's going to become bigger and bigger too. I bet you the Rockaways yeah. is going to be like blow up. Yeah. Because uh, that's like, uh, w- like the Hamptons, sure, whatever. It's like the traffic in and out is psychotic. Like, yeah, you could take the subway to fucking the Yeah, Rockaways. Berkshire's as far. Like, all of people's summer homes seem like kind of annoying a to get to worth it, I'm sure. Yeah. You know that my Brooklyn, Brighton Beach family, they would send all the kids with the grandparents to their Poconos house for the whole summer and only see them on the weekends. Oh, that's great. Isn't that weird? <laughs> <laughs> Um, okay, so the gas station attendant is like, yeah, I seen him. And uh, he tells <laughs> he tells them, uh, they're like, okay, well, like, did you know which way he came from? And he's like, nah. And then they're like, okay, well, if you wanted to do something sketchy and fucked up, where would you do it around here? And he's like, there's some abandoned cottages out on the beach. And they're like, okay, great. And then as they're running away, he goes, you won't make it in that car. Here, take my truck. And like, cat passes them his keys, which is, I think, so funny. 
It is, but someone that he, I bet he love. I bet he's a Blue Lives Matter. Oh, for, you know, he, I that bet he's man the has a thin line. blue line flag for sure hanging from his gas station. No way, <laughs> no way, no day he doesn't. Okay. Yeah. So he, they ride up to the cottages in this like fun red truck and then they hear somebody immediately yelling for help and they bust into this abandoned cottage. They find Annika tied to a dirty mattress, tied up on a dirty mattress. She's so bloody. It's really horrible. She's been in labor all day. She says, please save my baby. (sighs) And she doesn't care if she dies. Basically, he tells her like, you'll die if you give birth to this baby now. And she's like, just save my baby. It's like so tough to watch. And then Stabler goes into daddy delivery mode because he obviously has 90 children and has given birth to all of them himself. And Annika tells him that the baby's name is Celia. And um, she says, "Uh, Melinda wasn't supposed to tell. She came by to see me. So now we're getting some sketchy information. Like, what does Melinda have to do with this? So Stabler delivers the baby wraps it in newspaper, and it seems like everything's okay. The baby's, like, crying. She's cute. She's Everything's good. She hands Annika the baby, and she's like, I love you, baby girl. And I'm, like, tearing up because I'm, like, giving birth is so fucking horrible as it is in a hospital with all the comforts that you can be afforded, drugs, et cetera. So I just can't imagine being chained in a fucking abandoned beach house, like, bleeding out while I'm giving birth. Um, And then Stabler asks, like, why did the guy bring you here? And she goes, she paid him to... And Stabler goes, who? And then Annika starts passing out. And Finn's like, I'm losing her pulse. And they try to get her to hang on. We hear sirens. And this is like really good Stabler work. Like, you're loving Stabler here. He's doing everything to keep this woman alive. He's like, he's invested. He really is like desperate. It's like his own wife is giving birth here. So in the next scene, they bring Daniel into the hospital. And Benson's like, drop the act. You didn't do this. And he's like, yeah, I did. And Benson's like, you're covering for Melinda. Annika told us everything before she died. And that just, like, crushed me. I was very sad that she died. Obviously, They, seen, they toyed with us. They toyed I with know. us. I've seen the episode 10 times, but I think when you when SVU gets to you, you, you live, right? Like, that's, that's the agreement we have. You don't just die later. It made me sad. I know that... But also, why would you protect Melinda at this point? She sucks. Like, you still want to be with her? Like, you would still go to jail for her? She, like, took the kid. You know what I, I mean? Know. I know. So Benson goes, Annika told us you didn't know about the baby, but Melinda did. And then they bring Daniel Celia, his daughter, and they're like, if you take the fall for Melinda, you go to jail and this baby girl is alone with no one in the world to help her. Even though there is the aunt, but she's got money problems. Anyway. <laughs> I Do you think that's how my sister, niece, and nephews talk about me? <laughs> they're like, well, there's Lisa, but... Uh. <laughs> she's... <laughs> So Stabler goes to talk to Melinda in questioning and she's like, great, can we go now? And he's like, "Mm, mm, uh, we got to talk to you a little bit. And she's like, listen, when I fell in love with Daniel, I was scared that he still had feelings for Annika. So I went to go see her. And when I saw she was pregnant, I just knew the baby was his. What were you going to go see her for? To see if she still had feelings for him? Like, I don't, what what was the plan? And then Stabler is like, you did this. And she's like, I didn't. And then they bring Daniel in and she goes to like embrace him. And he's like, don't touch me. And uh, she's like, they're like, you did this. And she's like, it wasn't me. And they're like, well, Jezik said a woman hired him. 
And no one knew Daniel was the father except for you. And then Melinda gets this look in her eye like, oh no, I did tell somebody else. And Liv is like, spill it. And she's like, I can't. And then Liv's like, I'm smart. You told your mother. And she goes, she would have known Marlette from the mailroom at work because he, uh, Daniel had gotten him a job at the mailroom at work. And she probably put the brochures in your apartment. And then uh, Melinda goes, I didn't know until this afternoon when we went to get the mail money and I was short on cash. And our business manager told me that Daniel doesn't have a Cayman account, only mom does. And that's when she knew that her mom had planned this whole thing. And she said it was too late to help Annika, I guess because Annika was, they had already found her when she figured it out. And she's like, she's my mother. I love her. I didn't know what to do. And then Daniel sees Rose on the way out and says, how could you do this? And he says, like, I know I'm not the best. Like, I know I'm not like a purebred, but I would have loved your daughter. And the mom is like, that baby would have ruined everything. You've always been so trusting. Daniel would have taken your money and gone back to her and the baby. I did this for you. That's what the mother says this whole monologue to her daughter. And then they arrest Rose, who clearly will get off because she's very rich and powerful. And um, Melinda's like, Daniel! And Daniel's like, bye. And that's Dick Wolf, baby. Yeah, it's so tipsy-turvy, wild. And even though I've seen it a bunch, I'm always just, like, gripped by the mystery. Yeah. I never, I'm always like, wait, which one of them did it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And they did, I think they fucked up on casting, though, because Daniel does look like a rich guy. Yeah. He looks like a Yale boy, They uh, they maybe should have given him somebody with, like, more like a New York accent or something. You know, somebody that seemed a little bit more like... Looked poor. Yeah, or, like, just, yeah. Yeah. He looks like a hot rich... He looks like James Marsfield. Vance, what's the guy, you know? 27 dresses. James Marsden? Yes, that's the vibe I get from this guy. Like, a hot, you know, rich boy. It's that little swoop in his hair, I think. Yeah. This also, tragedy is, I think of trade. Trade is similar to this for me, where it's like the coffee The coffee one. The rich. Mm. Like, it's similar where it's like um, intertwining rich families, girlfriends, like- Parents doing crimes for, yeah. So um, those two are canon to me. And let's get going. Yeah. We'll be right back after we tell you about some delightful products. Listen, we're all SVU fans. We love a family drama. We love a mystery to solve. And you got to get hooked into a story with the details. You need the visuals. You need the storylines with the twists and the turns. And that is what June's Journey has and more. June's Journey is a mobile mystery game that follows June Parker, a daring young girl on a quest to uncover the truth about her sister's murderer. Dun, 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 dun. This is your chance to test your detective skills because you'll play the game as June herself. The game is filled with all these beautiful detailed scenes from the 20s, like lavish estates and gardens. And of course, little hidden clues are everywhere. There's twists, turns, catchy tunes. It all takes you deeper into this storyline. And if you play well enough, you can make it into the detective club. And there you can chat with other players and even compete with or against them, which is pretty exciting. And you 
never know which character might be a villain. Shocking family secrets will be revealed. And can you crack the case? Find out as you escape this world and dive into June's world of mystery, murder, and romance. Okay, love that. And guess what? It's all just one tap away. Discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. That's June's Journey. Download the game for free on iOS and Android. Okay, so um, this is famous, huge. You you know, if you're not 14, you you were alive, you know this. <laughs> it was a big deal. Uh, we're doing the Lacey and Scott Peterson case. And it's not that connected to this episode. And I was like getting nervous. And then Kara reminded me, this episode came out six months after. So yeah, six or nine months connected. or something after. <laughs> yeah, like you're definitely, when you're doing a, a pregnant woman missing with a high-risk pregnancy, when the hugest case of the decade is happening, they're connected. Yeah. <laughs> um, I also, I do have to warn you guys, this is a big one. Um, if you are commuting to work, this might take you three weeks. So get buckle up. <laughs> I will keep you uh, entertained to and from work. I also have to give a um, kind of heads up that I don't think Scott Peterson should have been guilty. <laughs> I, I know you might come for me. I am dying to hear how you get to this. So let's, let's start. Yeah. Um, and it's, I, it's the Casey Anthony of it all. I'm not saying he did not do it. I am saying if you cannot tell me how, when, and where the murder took place, you cannot sentence someone to death. I'm sorry. That is fucked okay, up. Okay, well, let's let, take us through it. Because I, I don't know. know. <laughs> Honestly, I don't know all the details of this. Like, I remember this story generally and, like, some of the salacious, like... Yeah, I was like, young. I, I was in high school. The, I wasn't paying yeah. attention. Um, So yeah. this was exciting. And then a part of me is nervous because I did supplement with a lot of sources, but the docu-series I did mostly watch... They think Scott Peterson, it's very Scott Peterson heavy. So maybe I got into the propaganda, but um, I will take you through this case and, you, you know, we'll see what happens yes, if I'm going to be a pariah or not. So <laughs> um, in 2004, Scott Peterson was convicted of murdering his wife, Lacey, and their unborn child. She went missing on Christmas Eve. So pretty exciting. I mean, sad. But, um, and this was in Modesto, California. Um, and it wants to be known as like this agriculture sleepy town, but all the citizens in interviews were like, uh, no. So the slogan for the town is water, wealth, contentment, health. And the little nickname for it is murder, meth, and auto theft. <laughs> so there's two like, you know, distinct parts of this town. Um, they did live in like the nicest part of Modesto, but it was very close to a high crime area. And that's how mm -hmm. most cities are. You're like millionaires row and then projects are blocks away from mm -hmm. each other. Um, as You know, in Chicago, at least. Um, and it was a sensation. This was one of the most famous crimes in history. Not even, yeah, 24-7 news is entertainment and there's a formula. So you want to find a defendant who is enviable, you know, wealthy, powerful. Also, someone that depends on their popularity for their livelihood. That is something that, you know, hits the media by storm. And most importantly, and this is where um, this kind of tracks is, are they attractive? Is the victim attractive? Um, that was them. We want attractive people, rich people, people, we want people being brought down, you know, um, as a culture. 
Not us personally. Um, I prefer to be around hot people. Okay, so... Um, <laughs> I want hot people to live. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so Scott and Lacey were very hot. Um, also, what added to this kind of case in the pandemonium is there was another woman. Mm. And so you watch every day because you're angry. And you you have all these emotions and you want to know what happened. So that's why it kind of like gripped the nation. And also... It was Christmas time. News is slow. TV shows are on reruns. Like, there's not much going on. And so it was like kind of this perfect formula where this could have just been a local news case, Mm, you know? Yeah. And Lacey, there's not much about her. And this is, it's like, yeah. And I think it's because the documentary I watched was trying to free Scott Peterson. Um, But (laughs) I'm sure there's (laughs) stories about Lacey. But she was 27 years old. She was a substitute teacher. She used to be a horticulture major. She liked being in dirt and plants. And like, that was her vibe. I just wanted to give you some information about her. Um, Very smiley and fun. And she liked the movie Superman. Okay. So Scott Peterson's account of what happened was they ate breakfast uh, right away Christmas Eve morning. Um, she She got up a little earlier. He waited like an hour or so. And then they watched her favorite show, Martha Stewart, which is funny to me for a young 27 year old woman to be watching Martha Stewart, like the number one show, but yeah, TV was different back then. Okay. Um, Then he said that she mopped the kitchen floor and was cleaning. And it's like, why is your eight and a half month pregnant wife doing that? Why are you not mopping? I'm sorry. Like, you're you're trying to give us an alibi or like, you know, describe stuff. But in my head, I'm like, I'll fucking kill you. How dare she be mopping? (laughs) So she went to take the dog for a walk and he decided to go fishing. To me, it's Christmas Eve. Why are you going fishing? Like, I just assume for Americans, at least there's more kind of... Vi- like you do more on Christmas. Yeah. Yeah. So that is strange. Um, so 920 to 40, someone did see him load umbrellas into the car and go to his warehouse. At 1030 to 1056, he was at his computer at the warehouse doing stuff, and that was easily tractable. Then he went to Berkeley to go fishing. Um, at t- and then so that's in Berkeley fishing Scott. What was happening here with Lacey is at 10, 18 a.m., the neighbor saw the dog walking around outside the home with a leash and the collar, but no Lacey. Um, so the dog, this golden retriever, very cute, um, had this leash. And so the neighbor took the dog and put the dog in the backyard. And then there's five sightings and witnesses remembering seeing a pregnant woman with a golden retriever. And all of them had like a moment of why she caught their attention. Like she tripped one time. Someone was like, oh, she's so pregnant. Oh, that, yeah, oh, that looks like our dog. Um, that dog, you know, everyone had like a little moment. But as we know from SVU too, like witness accounts are not to be trusted because humanity mm-hmm. is and are we're fools. So um this is gonna become a huge part of the case, like who actually saw the dog, are these sightings confirmed or not? So, but we have all of these sightings of her. The sixth witness um, was a woman and she was having a smoke before her shift at the hospital. And I love medical workers smoking cigarettes and eating fast food. It's one of my favorite things. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Because it just reminds us of like, of course, we all know the right things to do in life, but it is hard to complete these tasks (laughs) and take care of ourselves, even when you're a fucking doctor. And I I just like that. Um, And she saw Lacey at the park by this creek. um, And she then saw two men yell at her to shut that door. 
dog up. So I guess this was a very badly behaved golden retriever. And again, we do not know if any of these witnesses are trustworthy. This is just the base account of what happened. Detective John, one of the detectives, like, I don't believe any of these people. And I believe that she was already dead by then. So there's like a couple of camps. There's a camp that thinks he killed her on the 23rd and then got rid of her body on the 24th. Some say in the morning there was a murder, you know. Again, wow. there are no answers. How do you sentence but someone to death? But this guy thinks that six people seeing a pregnant woman walking a dog were making it up? That's a yeah. lot of people. It is. It totally is. Um, and you are like, you are memorable when you're eight and a half months pregnant. Yes. Your body looks like a body shouldn't look. Like- <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and well... And that's another thing where you're, when I, you know, I did give Kara a heads up. I go, I think I'm on Scott Peterson's side. Um, <laughs> how do you think this will go? Um, the thing with um, this case, and we talk about this all the time in all other cases, is police fuck up all the time. So it wouldn't be that shocking. And all of these witnesses, I mean, I'm getting ahead of myself, but it is a great question, Kara. The police never talk to these people again. Mm. All of these witnesses said that the police never contacted them for an interview. Ever. Hmm. Like there were tip lines. The cops did not listen because the cops had in mind what happened. And they do lying to the press. They do a lot of fucked up shit. And that's the thing. Like whether it's a likable or unlikable person, whether someone's guilty or not, we can all um, agree the cops will find a way to fuck a case up. Mm. You know what I mean? So Mm -hmm. that's the thing. They didn't even talk to any of these people. Wow. But maybe they didn't follow up with them because they're like, yeah, you are all full of shit. We know the neighbor put the dog away at 1018. So there's no way you could have seen it. And she actually Uh. physically touched the dog and put it in the yard. And she knew the time because she had an appointment that she left to right away. So to them, everyone else might have just been like seeing another pregnant woman or making it up for attention or seeing something else because they believed the first neighbor Mm. witness. And also those other witnesses would contradict this witness. So it's like... There is definitely a thing, too, of people wanting to be part of something so huge like that. Yes. For sure. Yes. Like, oh, uh, did you know I'm part of the Lacey Peterson case? Like, (laughs) I saw her. I'm one of the last people to see her alive. You know, like, people love that shit. Yeah, I mean... I can't say that I wouldn't be desperate, but I wouldn't, I don't <laughs> think I would make something. I would hope I would not sure, make stuff I don't think up. So. <laughs> um, so back to Scott at 12.54 p.m. He has a receipt from when he parked his truck at the marina and he was there till 2 p.m. He did not catch anything and called Lacey as he left there to go home at 2.15. And he left a very sweet voicemail for her. Um, but then he goes, hey, and I forgot to pick up the basket for Papa. So can you go pick up the basket? And it's like, Pick up the basket. She's pregnant. I was like, <laughs> she's mopping. She's doing errands. What the fuck? Um, he got back uh, to the warehouse at 4.30 p.m. to clip the boat back in there and then went straight home. Um, she was not there and the dog was in the backyard with the leash and the door was unlocked. Um, but he just assumed that she was at her mom's house. But the leash, that's weird. If she came home, she would have unclipped the leash. Uh, but then he threw his clothing in the wash right away. And that to me is shady. Like you don't do laundry on Christmas Eve when you're rushing. Like you put it, I just would not throw a load in. So again, I'm not on his side. He does lots of shady shit, but (laughs) so there's, you know, I'm trying to be. Yeah. uh, He showered, which I, I guess if you were fishing, maybe you got sweaty. But again, that's weird to do that. I think in the middle of the day, he ate pizza and milk. Disgusting. He should be arrested for that. Literally grow up. Yeah. 
Dairy on dairy. I just, what? Ugh. I'm just like having diarrhea thinking about what's happening. <laughs> um, so he called Sharon, um, that is Lacey's mother, at 5.17 p.m. Again, wouldn't she be doing Christmas? He fills the mom in like, hey, her car's here, but she's not. So I'm assuming she's with you guys. Did you pick her up? And they're like, she's not here. So at 5.47 p.m., uh, Lacey's stepfather calls 911. And it's 2004. Do they have cell phones? I don't know. I know I had a Nokia. I definitely played Snake in high school and I graduated yeah. in 05. So like, I, I, yeah, I had a Nokia. I had a phone. I had a phone in 04 for sure. So, but yeah. wait, was this 04? No, he was just charged in 04. This happened in 01. In 2004, he was convicted. Oh, I'm so sorry. She went missing in 01. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sorry. Oh, okay. I didn't have a phone yet. Yeah. Okay, good. <laughs> I love that it's how you have a phone is how this case is. (laughs) I got one. I actually may have gotten one like that Christmas for my first one and I left it in my room and never took it out. It was like weird. Well, because I'm also thinking like people um and in 9-11 were leaving voicemails to their loved ones in the plane and stuff. Oh yes, that's true. So they might have been around, but you know, Carrie Bradshaw didn't have one for to like see. Right. So like not everybody had one. Yeah. It wasn't like a everyone has a cell phone thing yet. Yeah. Um, so, but I'm sorry that I up top said 2004 convicted. This is all taking place in 2001. It obviously Great. takes years for the trial. So thank you for catching that. Yes. Yeah. No, that's so great. Al Brocchini is the detective and everyone in this documentary series is like, oh, he's a bulldog. He's the best. He's beloved. This Brocchini guy is a beloved detective. So the cops meet at the park and he's like, let's go to the house. We got to go to the house. Um, and they started going through all the stuff and there's no evidence of a forced entry or bloodshed or a struggle. Um, she had plans for that afternoon and then she was just gone. So at midnight that night, they take, um, Scott into the police station for a one hour interview. And he was very cooperative to what they could see. Like he was cooperating with them. So this is Christmas day. People are fucking working. It's kind of like a movie when you're like, no one would be working on Christmas. This is bullshit. And it's like, nah, people are working on Christmas. Mm. So Al Brocchini then called another detective of the Modesto PD, John Bueller, and he was just wrapping up a double homicide on Christmas Day. So he was like, yeah, I'll work on this with you. I'm already here and ignoring my family. And again, like, I do want to fuck a detective, and it's so hard that they are cops. It's like... So attractive to solve a murder with evidence, and then it's like... uh, Maybe a private... Oh, pri- need to go no, private, private eyes didn't pass the police test. So I don't, <laughs> I have standards. But aren't there former cops that like leave the force and do private work? Yeah. Maybe that's your goal. Like they hated their, I don't, you, I don't, yeah. but I wouldn't trust a PI. That's the thing. Yeah. They're like lying too much. <laughs> it's all a little tough for me. So, um, so Scott's there to do this interview. And that's the first time John has seen Scott. And he was expecting Scott to be like, are you working on this? What's this about? How about this? Are you finding my wife? But his behavior was very different from other people that he's dealt with that have just like have a missing loved one. He wasn't that interested in what they were doing or in the case. And their goal was to clear him right away. Like it, let's clear him so then we can get to work on other shit. Like Mm. they're not sitting around, you know, like they're like, okay, let's like, let's get through this. Let's go find her. Um, So it's Christmas Eve and uh, he... Agreed to take the polygraph, but then he talked to his dad and the dad is like, don't take a polygraph. Anything you do, don't do it. So he said no. And to them, that's like, the cops are like annoyed 
because to them... But I see why not to take it because they're course, unreliable. Of course. And so yeah. that's what the dad said to him. The dad was like, listen, if they if there's anything weird, they could get... Like, it's not worth it. Like, I'm going to call a lawyer. We'll get a lawyer. Like, don't do this. But to the cops, it was like, why don't you just do the things we're asking you to do so we can move on if you're innocent? Like, what is the issue? So him refusing the poly made them suspicious. Other weird behavior that they took into account was he didn't remember the kind of bait he used that morning while fishing. So that's strange. Like, you fished just 12 hours ago. You have your own boat. You obviously like it. Like, why wouldn't you know the bait that -hmm. you used? Yeah. Also, his main concerns weren't Lacey. His main uh, major concerns were his car door got hit by another door in the driveway. Or um, he was getting stressed out that they were taking pictures of his boat and wanted his receipts and stuff. And so they were like... but. On his side, they were like, they were suspicious of him because he had a receipt from the boat docking place, but then they were suspicious of him because he didn't have the receipt from the gas station he stopped in. So it's like, you can't have both ways. Like, did he save the receipts or did he not care? Like, but they didn't like, they didn't like his vibe. Mm -hmm. So like I said, December 26th, not a lot of news going on. And it became kind of like OJ where everyone wanted to watch it and every single channel and every, every paper, every, everyone wanted this. Yeah. You're like at home. It's Christmas. There's like no new shows are on. You're bored with your fucking family. You're probably just like, what's going on with this case? And like, you know. Yeah. And so because of this frenzy, he was assigned like a protector guy. So he was assigned Ed Steele, who was a former sergeant of the Modesto PD. And at the time he was assigned to be Scott's personal liaison for him and the family to the police to kind of like help out. And he spent a lot of time with Scott. First perception um, that Ed had of Scott was he was very charming. Um, So anyways, so there's a pregnant woman, you know, local news. People got interested. And then people turned out to help and search for her. And so everyone's showing up. Everyone's searching. Everyone's involved. People didn't even know her, but heard it on the morning news and people started to search. There was a volunteer center at the hotel that popped up quick. And it was open 24 hours a day. Um, so Ed Steele and his handlers show up to this help center days after Lacey went missing. And Scott was already there. So that's a good sign. You know, he's like helping with the search. But he says it was shocking that Scott was eating ribs because local restaurants were donating food to the search so people could like eat and work 24 hours. So he's eating ribs and he looked up to Ed and held the rib up that was like leaking, he said, of the sauces. And he was just like, oh, hey, look at this rib. And he was just like talking about the ribs and it rubbed Ed the wrong way where it's like, what, what? How are you eating ribs, chatting about ribs, your wife? Well, it kind of remi- it reminds me of Gone Girl, you know? Like whole, when, of course. Yeah, like when they're in like the pop-up like uh, volunteer center and then that woman takes a selfie with him and it's like, that's not even what he meant to be doing, but anything you do looks like you're fucking enjoying yourself or like fucking off when your wife is missing. Yeah. Yeah. A lot of yeah. the stuff about him and how he acts, though, it's like, I he does so much shady shit. It's pretty wild. But um, I am like, maybe he has autism. Like, maybe <laughs> he has panic attacks in front of cameras. Like, yeah. we don't actually know. I mean, I he's probably killed Lacey, but like, yeah, you know, like, I under... But that's the whole thing where it's like, even if cameras stress you out, you would do anything to find your wife. Yeah. You would do anything. Yeah, and they didn't like innocent. that. They didn't yeah. like that. And then the big news that everyone kind of knew was he kept saying, like, he kept talking about her in past tense. I loved her. Uh, she's still alive. Yeah. 
Um, so 850 telephone tips came in. You know, Cragen would be pissed and munch of all these people. Every um, crackpot in the city. <laughs> but again, it was all about the morning walks and everything. And the, But the cops were not using the community tips. And that's according to Scott's sister-in-law and this documentary. So like, I don't know... You know, we can't trust his family. It's tough. Mm. So the 26th, around 5 p.m., they have a warrant to search his house. Now, Detective John says the search warrant isn't even about finding physical evidence. It's about, they get info from the behavior of the accused. They were there to see how he would act if someone wanted to search the house. Scott did not give permission to do the house. That's a red flag to them. Yeah. He also hired a lawyer. Uh, Your wife went missing a few days ago. Why do you need a lawyer? Yeah. So that was shady to them. December 27th, it's three days missing. It is now a full-blown media frenzy. News broke that thing, like that things were taken out of the house with the search warrant. And it was just like, bam, everything was wild. Now, Ted Rowland um, is kind of a popular figure here. He was a local reporter who was like the first person on the scene days ago. He lived nearby. He had nothing to do. He was like, you know what? I'm going to go camp out. He camped out there every fucking day for months, months. There's a, there's another local reporter I'll mention, but like there's two local reporters that like legit were so involved in this case from the moment. And there's, there's like facts that become really important about that. Um, so uh, he rang the doorbell one day and Scott and the dog actually came outside um, and he was just saying how like he didn't really like cameras or want to be on camera or anything like that. And that was weird to Ted because it's like, again, don't you want to know, let people know what's up and ask for help? Like, why aren't you grieving and looking upset? Um, Ted described it as very aloof. So now f- day four, finally, this news of this burglary comes out. This is kind of a shady situation. So there was a burglary across the street from the Peterson house on Christmas Eve. Okay? So basically that day, a witness, it's a close neighborhood, like everyone kind of knows each other, drove by the residence and it was her friend's house. So she noticed that there was a van and three people, suspicious people, in front of her friend's home at 11.40 a.m. on that Tuesday morning. Then... Days later, she was talking with a friend who's, uh, who said their home was burglarized on the 24th. And that's when she put it all together. And she goes, wait, I saw the people. You know, the friend, that person went missing. Holy shit. And her friend goes, you need to call the police. You need to call the police. So that was actually the first time the family felt hope and like maybe there's an answer and like let's look into this burglary. Within a day of arresting the guys that were involved in the burglary, they realized, they concluded that it was not connected to Lacey and that the burglary is solved and it, whatever, and it actually happened on the 26th. So the police made statements and there's articles that the burglary actually happened on the 26th, not the 24th, but local news reporter Ted Rowland goes, absolutely not. I was on the pavement every single day. If there was something that happened on the 26th, I was on that street and I would have gone and interviewed them because I'm looking for anyone and the streets were empty. So the police lied about the date of the burglary to get people off their back and legit to the press said it happened on the 26th, but Ted can confirm that's absolutely not true. Wow. And the witness saw the van on the 24th. So it's like, what's going on? December 31st, a thousand people met up for a candlelight vigil. And they were, they hated him because he did not speak. He stood outside the camera area and people didn't like it. 
Yeah, she wrote Gone Girl based on this, I think, actually, right? No, 100%. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, because I'm like, this is like fucking straight from it, too. Like, No, no, Gone, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. But Gone Girl, for sure, it's like the guy, like Ben Affleck, who has no effect or whatever. Obviously, yeah. there's more twists to Gone Girl, but um, very Gone Girl. I thought about Gone Girl yeah, the whole yeah. time. And this um, vigil is going to become important soon, so keep that in your feather cap or whatever. But also, um, <laughs> and you know, we know this from SVU, guilty people like to come to the vigils. So, yes. you know, they can't help it. Then from the vigil, a photo came out, like you mentioned earlier, like one little thing wrong of him smiling and having a good time. People didn't like that. And uh, why aren't you crying? Why aren't you desperate? And so this photo of him smiling at his dead wife's vigil turned people against him. Yeah. Like, why are you hiding at the vigil of your dead wife? Like, what? Or missing wife. Mm -hmm. January 2nd, nine days missing. There's a press conference and they show people the truck and the boat to see if there are any tips of anyone who saw these things. Um, But also, these are small town detectives. So I don't think they're media trained. And suddenly, you know, the cameras, people, press, everyone's asking these small town cops questions and they release their biases and they deny talking about stuff. They imply things. It's like a hot fuzz movie. Like these <laughs> cops are kind of fools and they are letting people know. He goes, I can't say anything, but we haven't eliminated Scott as a suspect. And it's like, well, you've said a lot, sir. Yeah. <laughs> they also announced where he had gone fishing on the news, which I think is bad to announce the alibi. How are you announcing someone's alibi publicly when a body hasn't been found yet? If it is mm. someone else, they know where to d- dump the body now. Yeah, that's true. You can't announce the alibi publicly. Um, and then he also said he's cooperated to an extent. And Nancy Grace jump on, jumped on it. And that blew it up even more. Um, Nancy Grace was really bothered by him. She hated him so much. And she was going to dig. Now... Amber Fry surfaces, and she is Scott's girlfriend, kind of, other woman, okay? Um, she's a massage Mistress, ther- baby. Mistress, yes. She's a massage therapist who just finished massage school in 2002, and she had an 18-month-old baby, and she was living in Fresno. November 2002, Amber's friend was talking about a guy who her friend said was perfect for her. And she was looking for the one. And Scott told her that he was looking for one, like his guy, and never told her that he was married. But then she invited him to a Christmas party and he was pumped to go with her. And there's all these photos of them canoodling at this Christmas party. But it's like, you just met in November. That seems like it's moving very, very fast. Yeah. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But she likes the way you know, it was moving. Um, But she felt uneasy about something and something was odd because he had to talk to her, he said. And he admitted to lying to her that he was married but lost his wife and it would be the first holidays without her. And it's going to be really hard for him. But he didn't get into details and she didn't push any of the info. So this is, this is a year after Lacey's dead? No, no, no. That's just, Amber resurfaces into th- like during the investigation because oh, remember okay, new but years they're, but they're relate yes okay so she resurfaces later but she's but she but it's has been it's complicated because basically what happens is once she puts it together she tells the police and then for months records all of their conversations and then um the news got the photos and we're gonna leak them so then in january i think it's 24th i'll get to it they held a press conference with amber um, oh, okay 
They met November 2002. And he's telling her, this is going to be my first holiday without my wife. So all of a sudden, everyone goes, that's premeditated. So sketchy. And then weeks later, she's missing. So to them, it's like you premeditated. Then now it's now it's moved into premeditated first degree murder. Like yeah. you're telling your mistress, this will be your first holiday without your wife. But it could also just be a lie in the moment. But yeah, so it's fucked up. So 15 days later from that conversation that they had, the news story breaks. A few days after Christmas, she gets handed a newspaper from a friend and she recognized the truck and all the stuff and was in complete shock, which leads me to believe this Amber girl is one of the dumbest people alive. She did not watch the news. Like, she did not know at all what had happened. Her friend had to be like, um, this looks fucked. So now she puts it all together um, and she was in complete shock. So December 30th, they get a call, the police, from the tip line and his expression changed. Um, like, Al picked up the phone and John just knew that there was something to say. So, um the detectives go to meet Amber. And that that gave us a lot of information because in that first Christmas Eve interview, when they asked, how is your marriage? He said, absolutely fine. We have a perfect marriage. And it's like, well, no, you're cheating and you have a girlfriend. So at least let us know because now it's even, you're hiding stuff. What Basically, yeah. they're like, you are hiding stuff and that's all we need. Because yeah. if he was like, listen, I am fucking someone, then, he probably yeah. thought that would be against him. But in all turn, he just proved that he has something to hide. Amber agrees to help the police department and get him. So they bought a device that attached her phone and they tape recorded all the conversations between her and Scott. And then Scott calls right away. Like they set it up and Scott's calling. So she answers, she's nervous. And on the call, remember this is December 30th. He goes, hey babe, I'm going to Paris for New Year's tomorrow. And, um, and she has to act excited that she was going to see him. She has to act like nothing's going on. So remember that vigil on New Year's? He calls Amber from the vigil and goes, hey, babe, I'm in Paris. I'm here with my friends. We're by the Eiffel Tower. We're going to meet my friend Pascal from Spain at the bar. They are recording a conversation from his missing wife's vigil as he's lying to his girlfriend, talking to her, going, I'm in Paris, honey. There's fireworks. Wow. So twisted, and he's a great liar. January 4th, 2003, there's a recorded message from him saying, I, I miss you. They talked dozens of times after Lacey went missing, and Amber was trying to bait Scott into a confession. Unfortunately, he never did. Or fortunate. Like, he's always like, I loved Lacey. I love Lacey. I would never, blah, blah, blah. Like, he denied everything on these conversations. Yeah. But his actions were still weird. Like, it, it's just, it's fucked up. Um, January 5th, 2003, 12 days missing. Divers searched the water at the marina. They did 27 searches. They could not find a body. January 14th, they get word that the media had gotten a hold of photos from Amber and Scott together, um, but they hadn't told any of the family or like Lacey's family. So they're like, fuck, we have, we have to get you know, a move on. So they told Lacey's mom and Lacey's mom first reaction goes, why did he have to kill her? So that kind of turned because up until this point, up until the girlfriend, Lacey's family was had Scott's back. They defended Scott in every press conference, every interview, the brother, everyone was like, we love Scott. And the moment they found out about this girlfriend, everything switched. Fuck Scott. will Like everything switched. And of course, like, so January 24th, 2003, there's a press conference. It's one month of a dis the disappearance, breaking news on every station. And what's um, kind of 
something to keep in mind was the invasion of Iraq and Baghdad or Afghanistan, like all of that was happening during this. And it was equal billing. Like legit this case, like they would be talking about the war in the Middle East and cut from it for breaking news on Scott and Lacey Peterson. Like the war and this case were fully together, like as importance in our nation. Um, Breaking news on every station, this blonde girl comes out and she comes to the center and she's shaking. She's so nervous and no one knows who this is. This is like a soap opera. And it it was Amber Fry and she had been given a statement to read. She said she was so nervous and so scared. And like I said, game changer, Lacey's family turned on Scott immediately. Ted Rowland, the reporter from day one was like, oh, this guy wasn't hiding a dead wife. He's hiding a girlfriend. He's like a fucking idiot, but he's the only one that thinks that. Like he doesn't, he um, is someone that doesn't think Scott did it. So he was just like, oh, he was probably just hiding this girlfriend, but I don't know. Everyone was like, fuck you, Ted. So January 25th, Scott calls Amber and is like, so what? You called them up and asked them to do a press conference? What the fuck? And she's like, no, CBS was hounding me and my businesses and showing up and that I had to get them to get away from me. He then said he was proud of her and impressed by her character and she was brave. He said he threw up when he listened to the press conference, though. So I don't really get any of this. He's so dumb. I mean, that's the thing. Like, he is really dumb. And that's what's hard for me to understand how he was able to get away with this crime with absolutely no physical evidence if he's this Mm. dumb. Right. So then Scott goes, you know what? I'm going to go talk to the press too. And his lawyer's like, please don't talk to the press. Please don't talk to the press. He goes, I'm talking to the press. So he called Gloria Gomez and she was one of the local reporters who became very famous during this case and was very involved there every day. And she talks a lot about... um, like all of these national medias were coming, but what they didn't have was connections and relationships with the police departments. She's been on the beat. So she was getting tips from the police. Like she knew everything. She was involved with everyone. And so Gloria is like a big kind of person in this case. So he did an interview with her. He sat down with Diane Sawyer and did two other local interviews um, and with Ted Rowland and she's going inside the house, whatever. His eyes were shifty. There's nothing he could have done that would have been okay. Like everyone hated him. These interviews backfired. Yeah. And they were saying Diane Sawyer is like one of the best like journalists, interviewers for decades, like a top person in her career. And it's like, you think you can go toe to toe with Diane Sawyer? Like, bro. Oh, and then he told Diane Sawyer that he had told Lacey about his affair and she was okay with it. And everyone's like, your eight-month pregnant wife was okay with your affair? We don't believe you. But there's nothing he could have said or done that would have changed everything. Um, Now we're hopping up to April. April 14th, 2003, San Francisco Bay. Gloria Gomez gets a tip and they're like, you need to get to the Bay now. They find a torso and the body of an infant was found as well. But like I said earlier, if someone else did kill her, they let everyone know the alibi. So I don't know. And also what's strange about this, again, if this guy is dumb enough to let everyone know his alibi and then dump the body in his alibi, he's dumb enough to leave DNA evidence. And there's not, there's not even a fucking hair. You know what I mean? Like, but anyways, but now they can't find Scott. So the body is found and now Scott's missing. So it's like, clearly you're fucking guilty. So he's in San Diego laying low. Apparently his family is there. And he was just like trying to like 
get away from the attention. Um, and then he was being followed by a car that he thought he was media. So he was like trying to escape this media car, but it was actually law enforcement. And they were like, yeah, it was weird. He was flicking us off and driving crazy. <laughs> and so it's the cops. So they pulled him over. He was arrested at a golf course that was 30 miles away from the Mexican border. Not good. His hair was dyed blonde with a beard. Not good. He had around 10 to 15 grand with him, camping gear, his brother's ID, and four cell phones. So. I can't wait to get to how you think this guy didn't do it. I didn't say he didn't do it. Oh, no, no, you didn't say that. You didn't say I that. didn't say that. I believe if you cannot prove when, how, and where, you cannot charge someone guilty. Okay. I think Casey Anthony killed her baby. I for sure, Casey Anthony murdered her baby. She was found innocent because you can't, how do you sentence someone if you can't prove it? Well, I think you also incentivize people to get rid of bodies and evidence so that they cannot get, but there's enough circumstantial. But he's an idiot. Like, yeah, but he told his fucking mistress that I'll be alone on Christmas without my wife. I mean, this shit's nuts. Again, if that an was idiot. a dumbass, if that was a dumbass lying to his mistress, it's really fucking coincidental that someone went and killed his mistress. But they also did twenty-seven I mean, searches for that body in that body of water and did not and find that it. Same, so that's where his boat is, San Francisco Bay. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, so maybe it was dumped later, you say. It doesn't matter. He could be a guilty as fuck. I'm just saying, like, the reason we have courtrooms is, like... Yeah, no, you're right. Because there one is, of the... There's a system. We'll get to everything. Obviously, this is a giant case. Um, I'm trying to make... But, like, one of the jurors after the trial went on Larry King, and Larry King was like, so what happened? And the juror goes, can you clarify that question? And Larry goes, no, you're on the jury. You just sentenced a man to death. Tell me what happened. <laughs> and the juror couldn't. And I'm sorry. Like, that's just not, you know what I mean? Like, yeah. I don't think he did not do it. I'm just saying the investigation was fucked and he didn't have a, a fair trial. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, I'm not on his side, but I'm on the side of like, the court system. I mean, the, the trial was fucked. And like, there's uh, recently they took away his death sentence because the trial was so bad in the ju- in the jury selection. Yeah. But he was still found that. guilty of the crime. So like, there is evidence that links him to it. It's just like, sorry, Taylor Swift, no body, no crime. Okay. Um, anyways. <laughs> Legit, no evidence found in the warehouse or at his house at all. Um, there were media leaks from cop friends to the reporters and leaking stories. So what what the cops wanted to get out is what got out. His boat was tiny. Like, to conceal a 150-pound body in his tiny boat is wild. And it would capsize. Like, they tried to, like... Also, in the like, Dexter goes out at night for a reason, okay? Like, you're telling me this motherfucker on his tiny boat had a full-on body and dumped it in the middle of the day in the bay? Like, it just... It just kind of doesn't make sense. But he's dumb, so he could have. So Mark Garagos becomes Scott's attorney and he is the hot shot attorney of all attorneys, every celebrity. He loved attention. He loved fame. He cost a million dollars and the family was able to like sell shit and pay for him. So he's a million dollars. But the thing is, he's kind of a beloved guy because he did all these famous cases. He was always the talking head. He was on the news all the time. And his people told him like, bro, once you do this, you will not be liked ever again. But I bet he was like, I'm going to be rich forever. <laughs> like, I'm going to, you know. So he got the best attorney in the game. 
Matthew Dalton was the investigating defense attorney. And with the discovery law, the police had to turn over everything they had regarding the case. 30,000 pages of documents, and he went through every single one. He spent over 100 hours with the jail, uh, in jail with him. He got to know Scott very, very well. But they made Scott and this uh, attorney meet in interrogation rooms. And so they were scared that the detectives were listening in. And so they had to write down everything and they only communicated by writing things back and forth because they did not trust that they were not being spied on on the two-way mirror. Oh, and then to test the theory, this guy started talking shit about one of the cops. And when he left, um, his tires had been slashed. Now, I'm sorry, but how do you make this trial non-biased? He's the most hated man in America. He's on the cover of every tabloid magazine everywhere. Um, So, but they only moved the trial 50 minutes away. And it was closer to San Francisco where the body was found. So everyone knew, like, how are you going to find someone that doesn't know about this case? So the trial took place in San Mateo County. Why wouldn't they have, like, what? Move move it to Tennessee. Like, what is happening? Like, you know. 50% of the people that came in to be jurors admitted that they thought he was guilty. Um, They barely could find people that would be open to giving him a fair trial. Uh, The jury was finally chosen after talking to hundreds and hundreds of people, um, but they weren't able to sequester the jury because it would have been too expensive because the case was going to be so long. Um, And they actually, like, this trial was such a zoo. They had a lottery for people to get in to watch the trial. Like, people were lining up around, like, to get a fucking seat in that trial. Mm. So anyways, the trial went on for eight months. And so they asked everyone to please not talk about the case. But it's like, LOL, okay. Um, They were also not allowed to read newspapers or watch the news. But again, even if you tried, (laughs) how are you avoiding the number one big thing in the case? I, I mean, in the country. And then something that happened that I've never thought about um, in this A&E documentary was about how everyone walks in through one door. Every single person goes through security. So jurors, family members, everyone. And they were given permission, the jury, to say good morning and hello, but that was it. But I just never thought about that. Like, duh, they're all intermingling. Um, Yeah. But then one juror got dismissed because he said something to the brother of Lacey on the fourth week of the trial. Um, All he said, but the camera, a camera was nearby, was, oh, I'm ruining the shot. I guess you won't be on the news today. And that's what got him dismissed. Huh. I don't know. He also was talking about the witnesses to other jurors, um, and they're not allowed to discuss the trial at all. So, And he kept trying to talk about the case. And so another juror told on him and got him ousted. Okay, so this is where shit becomes fucked. So the judge also, during the selection, asked people, if you are against the death penalty, and and if they were, they were not allowed to sit on the jury. So anyone that was on that jury was okay sentencing him to death. Mm. which is fucked up because the judge didn't ask, like, are you, even if you are against the death penalty, are you capable of, like, sentencing him to death if needed or, like, with the law? And the judge never asked that. He legit dismissed anyone that is not for the death penalty, which you can't fucking do. So basically, he just turned the trial into, you know, just a death trial. The judge even made an announcement, like, if there is circumstantial evidence that gives two possible outcomes, you must accept the one of innocence. You have to be proven guilty. He did say that, but he denied any mistrial, even though the jurors were, like, blabbing and 
causing all this problem. And then one of the jurors started doing news and interviews and just blabbing to anyone that would let like listen to him. So Justin Faulkner, this juror who kept blabbing to all the media outlets, that's how he that's how everyone found out that the prosecution was like fucking up. The prosecution was doing a really bad job. And I talked to, I mean, Casey Anthony was our pilot, so like it's not released, and we're waiting till we get Hillary Duff one day. But um a big thing with that is, and I talked about this with sports, where it's like, if you think you have it in the bag, you're not going to try as hard because you're cocky. So you're coming in so cocky that the defense is working so hard, you can't pull that shit. And that's what happened with Casey Anthony, and it happened here too. The prosecution was like, oh, we got him. And they really, really fucked up the case. They were getting, like, squashed in court. They were getting squashed. There's a time where it flips, and we'll get to it, obviously, but, like... um, they just were really, really doing a bad job. Um, and that's what I talk about with sports. Like, if you're playing the best team, they don't respect you. They might not try as hard. So if you come in playing basketball ugh, as hard as you can, you can win. Um, <laughs> so the crux of the prosecution's opening statement for motive is that Scott didn't want to be a dad and wanted to be out, like, out fucking and free. And instead of divorce, he chose murder. The defensive opening statements on the second day of the trial was an aggressive, like, Mark's aggressive. And basically, his whole thing is, you might not like him, but he's not guilty. Like, he might be a piece of shit and a cheater and a liar, but he's not guilty, even if you don't like him. And he had a got you moment right away. In the opening statements, the prosecution said that he lied about, um, like, the mo- watching Martha Stewart that morning because there was no meringue mentioned in that episode. And then Mark's defense played the clip and the meringue was on in that episode. I cannot believe Martha's meringue was such a huge part of the opening. Yes, and to me, it's like, wait, you put that big of a mistake in your opening statements, prosecution? You didn't even watch the episode? That's Fucking... huge. Yeah, that's bad. And the prosecution had all of these witnesses and expert people and the defense just mopped the floor with all of them and poked holes through every single one of the witnesses. Like, to the point, like, embarrassed the shit out of everything the prosecution did. And so they had this computer expert on and they didn't ask this and then the defense asked questions and basically they got evidence that in the computer in the day in the house someone was looking at umbrellas with a sunflower pattern and she loved sunflowers and had all of these sunflower outfits so who was in who was on the computer so the prosecution didn't even ask this these questions of their own witness and the defense came up and was like wait was someone on the computer in the house yes who was it no one knows Like, if he set up the computer sunflower thing and, like, went on the computer, then he would have tried to, like, push it into evidence or be like, no, look, someone was on the computer. Like, it was a surprise to him, too. So, I don't know. Um, But there was just no solid evidence and there was a lot of back and forth situations and a lot of flops with... um, The prosecution. They were flopping. The prosecution's a floppyana. I don't know what to tell you. (laughs) And it is tough. Like, I know the doc I watched is biased. Like, it's his family trying to free him, you know? But I... But, like, the people that they interviewed throughout the doc, like, they asked one of the reporters, Gloria, they're like, do you think he did it? And she goes, is that a real question? And then starts laughing. And she goes, that jury should be sleeping well at night. So they did put in stuff where... I don't know. It's just tough. I'm just, like, embarrassed. And I would love people to... 
take me off this path. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, I would like to not be on Scott Peterson's yeah. side here. Yeah. Um, and then our beloved detective on the, on the stand, Al Brocchini, he was caught in a lie. He said that Lacey had never been to the warehouse and didn't know he had a boat. But then there was a witness who said that she had seen Lacey there the night before. And like... Interesting. She was at the warehouse the night before she died? Or the night before she was disappeared? Yeah, but that seems weird too. And then it was, re- and then Al redacted it from the report. So that means he's concealing evidence by dropping a paragraph. And so Mark ripped into Al and people said that it was wild. Like wow. everyone that was there, because, you know, what would happen is so everyone would do the lottery, all the press, everyone was fighting to watch this trial. And then during little breaks, the press would run out and do quick interviews yeah. and like all these legal, um, like panel people were living it up. And so it was like people just like would run out and be like, Al Brocchini got smashed in court, you know? So it was just um, like a sporting event. So I don't know. I guess he lied. He got caught in a lie. Um, back to the case after Al Brocchini was humiliated. No, I don't know. But it was, it would be weird that she was there the night before. Yes. Doing what? At his warehouse? What's his warehouse for anyway? Well, he was a fertilizer salesman. So I think it's like his computer. He held his boat. It was like a work kind of thing. There was um, some concrete there. Like, basically, they said that that she put there. Yeah, there was loose concrete also, but it was circumstantial. Like, you, I don't know. Whatever. Yeah. I just like saying circumstantial. So I feel like... (laughs) I'm on the show. Um, And then everyone said that Scott showed absolutely no emotion during the trial, even when the autopsy photos were shown of his dead wife and baby. Like, no looking at him, no reaction, nothing. Wow. Um, And that's according to the jurors. And then one of the day one reporters, Ted, he said that he did have a reaction. It was just not reported. And it's like, Ted, I don't... Shut up. (laughs) Ted's on Scott's side. (laughs) Ted is on Scott's side. I gotta find Ted. Um, But then the big twist of the trial and the switch from the prosecution, um, from like the defense winning to the prosecution came when Amber Fry's recordings came out in the trial. Um, And once you hear them, it changed the dynamic because even the defense knew that they were screwed. His complete not caring about his wife and just flirting with Amber was chilling to listen to, to everybody. Like straight up, you're at the, like no emotion at all. Um, So now one of the defense attorneys is like, you know, it was played out like this huge affair, but they actually only saw each other four times. So I don't know. It was just a few weeks. It was just a few week affair, but I don't don't know. He was Uh, obviously really into her or into the idea of leaving his family. Yeah. Yeah. I just don't think, I don't know. I don't, but I wonder if he ever felt anything ever or if he is associated, like, I wonder if he ever showed emotion. Or did anything of that sort. Um, and Amber is a character witness, um, one legal analyst said, and had any, nothing to actually do with the case, but it put his character into play. So, oh, and then this is really fun with Amber. So Amber, you know, all this is happening, and um, she is in the limelight, and her dad calls her and was like, hey, I just saw this lawyer on TV, and I think you should contact her. And it was Go- Gloria Allred. Of course. So... <laughs> Gloria came to help Amber and uh, just, it was pretty amazing. (laughs) Uh, Because what Gloria was saying, like, 
if she wanted to and she was a shady character, she could have sold those photos to the press and made millions of dollars. This was the top case in the fucking nation. Like, if she was nefarious and had, like, shady shit to do, she wouldn't have had to work undercover for the police. She could have just sold that shit. So, you know... That was, like, Gloria's big push, like, that she did the right thing, and then she was treated so poorly by the media. And the media was like, she's uglier than Lacey. She's dumber than Lacey. Fuck this slut. And it's and it was like, um, <laughs> I don't know. She's actually doing the right thing. She's, like, yeah. trying to find out who did this. Yeah. Um, and then racy photos came out of her in, like, sexy laundry and stuff, and people didn't like that. So August 10th, 2004, it was Amber's turn to take the stand. Um, and it was two years had passed from the first time that she'd even seen Scott face-to-face. Um, and she knocked it out of the park. She um, was working for the cops and did keep prodding and questioning him and bringing up Lacey and did you love her and did you do it? He never incriminated himself and he always just brought up finding her. Like, we need to find her. That was his big thing where it was like, why are you focused on me? Go find her. You're wasting time and I'm scared that this is going to stop the investigation to find her. But also, then why didn't you let them just search your house and take the polygraph and like do all of these things that would help the investigation? He did come across as a creep and it that it's easy to lie from him. And there was an anger at Scott from the jury and prosecution got some momentum. And that was, like I said, the switch of the trial. And then um, more evidence that I mentioned this earlier, like the defense did experiments with the boat and like putting in 150 pounds and trying to like take it off the boat and the boat would flip over. Like the boat would capsize. There's no way off of such a tiny boat. It sounds like he had like literally like a little motor boat, like not like a... Like yeah, a, just like a, little, a pontoon boat. Like yeah. this was not like a nice ass below deck style. <laughs> no, I mean, but. I didn't think it was a yacht, but it doesn't even sound like it's like a real like big no. fishing, but it sounds like it's a motorboat where you go sit and like drink a yes. beer and stick your little rod in the water and see what happens. Yeah, and it was like metal. Yeah, yeah, like yeah. a metal little exactly. kind of thing. Yeah. Like the kind of, that's the kind of boat that I think takes people from the dock to their big boat. It's like the dinghy, basically. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yes. But that was his big thing. Oh, and then this was, this was wild. So the prosecution said that this dog tracked Lacey's scent uh, all the way to the marina. and But then we find out this dog failed two tests to become certified. <laughs> this was... <laughs> It's a community college police dog. Oh, no. So, and then also they're just like, if she was already dead and in the boat and in bags and never on the, like, how would the scent stay on this marina? You know what I mean? It was just kind of wild, but people loved the dog and they interviewed jurors after and the jurors were on the dog's side. Like, (sighs) a lot of jurors decided their decision because of this dog, but the dog was a failure. And I'm not saying the people that went to community college are a failure. Please don't come for me. I just think it's funny that this dog, like, is basically like... The girl, the, who's the woman from fucking OC whose husband failed the bar seven times? That's this dog. Like Emily and what was Emily, his name? Nate? Emily and no, Emily Jeff? and oh God, he's horrible. What's his fucking he's name? Shane. 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 <laughs> this Shane. dog is Shane. <laughs> a different dog with a different handler did not scent Lacey on this dog. Okay. But the jurors were hardcore on this dog. It was like one of the women being interviewed in this doc was just like, they're like, what would what made you choose him? And she, uh, you know, say guilty. And she was like, the dog. 
absolutely the dog. And we'll get to this jury. This juror, she had a nickname called, um, like, they called her Strawberry Shortcake. And she was a backup juror. I mean, the jury stuff is really wild. I'm trying <laughs> to get through this evidence so we can fucking get in it. Okay, and the big thing was, like, the body was found where he said he was going to be. So, like, if the body was found anywhere else, he could have been easily, like, cleared of the crimes. It's just so but many that, coincidences if yeah. it's not him. It's a lot of fucking coincidences, you know? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. So then closing arguments happened in November. I mean, what a fucking trial. Um, the prosecution closing got the jury to cry. And um, basically, you know, some people say they subbed a motion for hardcore evidence, but they didn't have hardcore evidence. So this is what you do. The defense kind of bombed. Um, bad day to have a bad day, but the defense did not nail it and really just had uh, terrible closing arguments. And I've said, this is where I'm coming from. Not that he didn't do it, but if he's dumb enough to dump the body where he said he was going to be, he was dumb enough to leave evidence somewhere. A hair, blood, lumen, like something should have caught something, right? Like if that, if you're that dumb, but okay, I don't know. But like, let me, let me, let me just say, like, he, he, like, he chokes her, let's say. Maybe he doesn't yeah. hit her. Maybe he chokes her to death. Like her hair being anywhere is not a red flag. He's her wife. Like he's her, uh, she's oh, yeah. his wife. So it's like, this is like, a, this, if he chokes her to death so that there's no blood, and we don't know because her fucking head was missing. So I don't even know if they could determine cause of death. It's just like there is, I'm not saying he's not not dumb. I think he is dumb, but I think it's possible he lucked into not leaving any evidence. Lucked into, for sure. It's just like, because even the police that testified where their theory was that she he killed her the 23rd. But it's like, she was seen the 24th. You know, there just wasn't, Right. Concrete evidence. Like, yeah. unfortunately, like, I... But, yeah. And it is wild. It is wild to think what you said. Like, if she was seen the morning of Christmas Eve and, like, then by the evening of Christmas Eve, the police are being called, when did he dump her? Like, if he dumped her at 11 a.m. when they found the dog wandering around, that's the middle of the fucking day. So, yeah, what? how are you getting rid of a body in the middle of the day? Yeah, like, you don't have a wood chipper. Yeah. Like, I don't... I It just doesn't make sense. And you're right. He could have just choked her out, but then what? It's heavy. He does have a truck. He could have put the body on the truck, but then, like... I just think getting rid of her in somewhere. the middle of the day on this bay would have been difficult with nobody seeing you. But I, I, don't, right? know the, I don't know the area. No, I agree with you. And also, like, who else is fishing on Christmas? Yeah. <laughs> like, I don't think Jews really fish. If you're a Jew that goes fishing, let me know. I, just I don't know. A boat of Orthodox Jews. Like, what's that guy doing? <laughs> <laughs> but I have to be honest with myself. The fact that, like, I was pissed Casey Anthony wasn't found guilty. You know, yeah. like I understand the uh, the thing of like I don't I know you fucking killed that baby. Yeah. I don't care if the evidence doesn't show it. Um, so it is like I don't know why I feel kind of like I don't know. I just. Yeah. I just don't want to suddenly be like, the cops did a great investigation. It's like, we know cops fuck up investigations. Well, and listen, are you more mad that he was found guilty or found that, or that he was sentenced to death? Because I think we're also both just anti-death penalty. I think it's wild to sentence someone to death without a concrete box. evidence. Without, yeah. I do. I think it's like really fucked up. 
Yeah. And well, now he's not getting death anyway. Yeah. Right? And it's, it could have been because of this doc, honestly. It's around the same time. So whatever. Let's get, so jury started deliberating and they took an initial vote and it was 10 to 2. Then day five of deliberating, a juror confessed to doing their own research and was taken off the case and was replaced by an alternate juror. Are you an idiot? And so this alternate juror was watching the whole time. And from the beginning, she cried the whole case. Like, she was so emotional, so into it. And they called her Strawberry Shortcake. And I am obsessed with her, but she is the reason he's not getting sentenced to death because she did such fucked up shit. So they had to start over deliberating and things got so wild and they hated the foreman and needed to replace the foreman. And so there's gossip uh, that a juror threatened him and there were just fights and everyone thought he was guilty, but the foreman was just focused on the facts. So they dismissed the foreman. What? Yeah. How is that possible? You're supposed, that's a hung jury. If the foreman won't change then that's a hung jury. They didn't want a mistrial. I have no idea. But like the guy that they say threatened him and like physically assaulted him denies it. Um, but there were just scuffles and the foreman was let go. They let go. So the guy that wanted to like go through the evidence was let go. And the guy who threatened him got to stay. Like if, why don't you get rid of both of them? Yeah. Like, why aren't you getting rid of the one that threatened maybe they don't the have, other Maybe juror? they only have so many alternates that were there for the whole trial. I don't know. And you're right. If he stuck around, it would have been a hung jury. Yeah. So then, listen to this. November 11th, 2004, another new replacement came in. And the next day, they had their verdict. That's shady. So, right? So the final vote was 12-0. The verdict was in Friday morning and they only met up on Thursday afternoon with the new juror. So in nine hours. And what, so like the defense attorney actually like when there was a new juror, he goes, oh, I can go back to LA for the weekend. And even Scott's sister was like, okay, cool. I'll go back to San Diego and come back next week. And then they all got called in the next day. Crazy. So then one of the jurors, they come in to read the verdict and Gloria Gomez, the reporter, said that she saw one of the jurors wink at Lacey's mother before the verdict was read. Oh, no. But when the verdict was read inside, um, they said that you can hear the cheering outside. Like people were, they were partying. It was, people were very, very excited for this. Does like, Scott need, talk in this doc? No. Oh, there, so in 2017, I mean, he's in San Quentin and so there's um, voice conversations. So there's just like um, voiceover and co uh, closed captioning of what he said, but he's in jail, no video. Okay. I was just wondering if he was still like so unaffected. Yeah, I think he's, just like a cold. I think he's like Dexter. Sorry, I, I have dogs cheering for the verdict outside of my fucking <laughs> place right now. If you can hear dogs, um, um, but yeah, he's still. You know, he's he says he's innocent. Yeah. Um. So then things got tricky. So after the jury, this legal expert who was doing a lot of press during the trial outside the court steps said that a friend came up to her and said a bunch of the jurors were hanging out at this bar and talking about the case and how they're going to get Scott Peterson. And since she's an officer of the court she had to say something, you know? Because, like, you're deciding if someone lives or dies. Like, you follow the rules. So she did tell the judge. The judge brought the bartender in who pled the fifth, and the juror got to stay on the case, and everything stayed normal. Why would the bartender plead the fifth? What's the bartender going to get? Like, you plead the He could have lied. Oh, okay. 
But or you, he didn't want to overturn this yeah. thing because everyone was so happy, like, you know? Yeah, like, you plead the fifth to not incriminate yourself, but I guess he's just trying to, like, keep the verdict upheld, but... Okay. Yeah, maybe he was just trying to be cool and, like, bragging to this woman who was yeah. like, okay, well, I'm an officer of the court. Like, you're putting me in a fucked up place. So during the sentencing hearing, Lacey's mom, Sharon, um, did take the stand. Everybody cried. Press, the watchers, jury, everyone was crying. So then after this trial, though, they made celebrities out of these jurors. And the strawberry shortcake legit came out and called him an asshole, said, welcome to your new home, San Quentin, you asshole. Like, people, all these jurors were going all over television, doing interviews, and they became kind of, like, very popular from this. Yeah, and it was just okay to, like, outwardly hate this man. Like, he was so, yeah, wow. Yeah, and, like, um... Also, of course, this jury's dumb. You had to find people who had no idea about this case and didn't have it. You know what I mean? Like, it is kind of wild. Yeah. And at the end, of, so he was sentenced to, you know, death by lethal injection. The The thing is, to me, this case is not solved. Yeah. To me. Okay. I don't think this case is solved. Like, if he is guilty, like, prove it. I don't know. Yeah. It, wasn't prov- it was not proven to me. Um, but if I was on that jury and it was 2003 or whatever... I don't know if I would have found him not guilty. I might have charged him. I think he absolutely did it. I just think that I agree with you that the police work is bad. I mean, this is very yeah. making a murderer. Like, I, for a while, was like, he's he's innocent. And then it was like, people were like, Kara. Like, it, he did. <laughs> like, I'm like, all right. You know, but I don't think they proved it. I didn't watch that one. Oh, man. I was obsessed. I watched it twice. Should I watch it? Is that something I should go back and watch? I think so. I mean, it was, oh, I was like obsessed. I think now, especially that you've researched cases like this and stuff, you you would be so fascinated. Ooh, okay. So Scott Peterson's appeal was filed in 2012 and the biggest issues for the case, they said, was like the dog evidence. <laughs> um <laughs> Oh, and the hydrologist, like, they study, I guess, water patterns that testified in the courtroom. Like, he was saying how the bodies would have shifted and all this. He had absolutely no expertise, never did a study, and never practiced it. But um, he was allowed to testify. Um, Whatever. There's just, like, all these issues with the appeal, and they wanted to overturn the death penalty. So, I don't, you know, whatever. There's... Lots of like, this, 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 this. I don't care. But where's Dr. Michael Baden and why was he not involved in this case? Because I'm telling you, <laughs> if they fucking called him and he showed up, yeah. he would have found some motherfucking evidence, okay? He would have found some evidence. Yeah. Dr. Henry Lee, let's get somebody in here. So then this is all just like grasping from straws, maybe from the Scott's side or things are real. The There was a mailman. Um, that said that the dog barked at him every single day. And on Christmas Eve, the dog did not bark. And he, so the dog was not there. Okay. There's a tip from a correctional officer that the burglars were caught talking about Lacey on tape and it was sent to the police, but the police never got it and the tape went missing. And that was that. Like the police didn't log it or use it. The burglars from across the street? Yeah. Okay. And they said, like, when they were interrogating the burglars, the bur- one of the burglars went, I don't know anything about that pregnant woman. And the cop went, we're not here to talk about that. We're here to talk about the burglary. And then never brought it up again. But again, I don't know. I don't know. But we there were know people sitting outside reporting on it. So that could be why the guy brought it up. But yeah. 
Yeah, but if I was a good detective, I don't know. I don't know what it is to be a good detective or not. I don't do the job, but I feel if someone said that, you'd be like, oh, well, I never even mentioned it. What mm-hmm. What do you know about the pregnant woman? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, uh, you wait until they hang themselves. Isn't that the whole point that we learn in S- <laughs> SVU? <laughs> Hello. So, yeah, they say that maybe Lacey confronted the burglars, but then why would they keep their body for so long? There's just, like, too fucking yeah. much jury drama, whatever. And the one thing that the uh, the defense attorney said, he he thinks Scott's innocent. He keeps saying that. But he um he said, you can't really judge how people act during grief. And he's like, I've been doing this for decades. And you really can't decide if someone did it or not by how they grieve. And- no, same. Like, did I, have I talked about this on, on the podcast? How, you know how I was like on Dateline one time because the girl I went to college with, her husband disappeared from the cruise. Yes. So people were like being so sketchy about her because she was going on all these TV shows talking about her husband disappearing from the cruise, but she wasn't crying. And they were all like, what the fuck? This is sketchy. She had something to do with it. And it's like, no, she's just not crying. Like everybody handles grief in a different way. Like they just, yeah. everybody just wants, especially from a woman, people just want to see a specific reaction of like hysteria to know that you're like, you have nothing to do with it. And do you think your friend killed her husband? No. <laughs> I don't think she had anything to do with it. So August 2020, the Supreme Court did overturn the death penalty. But they upheld the conviction. Okay. So all those mistakes. Oh, so didn't just kind like of... a year and a half ago. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. There were, the jury selection was the biggest flaw, but I don't know how you overturn the death sentence because of the jury selection, but not do a mistrial, like another trial. Like if the jury is, all the jury errors led to an unfair death conviction, how did it not? lead to an unfair trial. Mm. I don't really understand that. Yeah. But I guess there's evidence that obviously they upheld it for some some sort of reason. Um, but the big errors were jury selection. So the big thing, you know, I mentioned Strawberry Shortcake earlier. Her big thing that fucked up this um, case is she lied on her questionnaire. So, you know, they ask you all these questions and they ask, have you ever been a victim of a crime or like been in a legal battle? And she said no, and that is fully not true. So she failed to disclose that she was involved in legal proceedings and that she was a victim of a crime. Basically, she was granted a restraining order in 2000 against her boyfriend's ex-girlfriend for harassing her when she was pregnant. Oh, wow. So you legit have someone on the jury who was attacked while they were pregnant. Yeah. What? Okay. Yeah, that seems like a bad move. Yeah, but December 8th, 2021, so even more recently, he was resentenced to life in prison. Oh my God, like a month ago. Yeah. Wow. So he's there. Um, And then Sharon did show up to that hearing and she was like, you're a coward. You didn't want to be a dad, but Connor would have been 18 by now and you would have been free of child support. So like, what the fuck? And she's like, Lacey and Connor will always be dead and you will always be the murderer. So that is the final words from Lacey Peterson's mother, Sharon. So other things I liked. Um, Scott's dad called Nancy Grace live on the air to tell him how he feels and it got really heated. And he's like, don't interrupt me. You've had your time to talk. (laughs) And so the dad called and just like fought with Nancy Grace on the air. So I didn't hate that move. I was like very into it. (laughs) Another thing I like is there's a club called Spa, Scott Peterson's Appeal. And it's a group of like his family members and just like different women who believe that he is innocent and they like work on 
the case. Um, but it is all women. And I wonder if that's like the classic yeah. Ted Bundy, lo- you know, love of it yeah, all or yeah. whatever. And they miss, con- like, they miss, like, they loved them too. Um, so they like, where they found Connor's body, they like always go put flowers down and like they miss, you know, they're not just like yeah. fully like Scott's the victim here. They're pretty upset as well. That's not something I love. Yeah. So also there was rumors that the defense wanted to like spin about satanic sacrifices and cults and like, you know, I love a satanic moment. Yeah, you satanic always can panic. bring up satanic panic <laughs> if you're having a, a hard time making a, your defense work. Yeah. And that's what Nancy Grace said. She was just like, okay, if like all of these ludicrous ideas wouldn't be necessary if he was actually innocent, like you guys are grasping at straws. And one of the defense um, investigators was like, yeah, but anything I looked into was written in the police report. I mean, the police did investigate the satanic cults. Like that wasn't just, you know, whatever. But okay. So now there's, this is what I'm interested in. And I can't find a lot of information. So that's why, like, I don't know if it's a lie or not. But from 1999 to 2002, seven pregnant women disappeared in the area. So, like, I don't know if we need a Dexter New Blood. Like, people need to show up and find, like, maybe there is just a serial killer. Like, six months prior, there were different pregnant women found dismembered in the Bay. And Evelyn Hernandez was one of them, and she's the only one I can get any information about. And obviously, it was really fucked up because she's Latino and got no attention. And then Lacey got all of this attention, um, but her body was in parts in the Bay, in the exact same Bay. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Evelyn Hernandez. Um, she went missing uh, in 2002 uh, in May, a week before her due date. And that's same with Lacey. It was like a week or two before the due date. So I just think it's maybe it's coincidence and maybe Evelyn's has like, well, Evelyn had a boyfriend who was married and had a full family and didn't want her to have a baby. So like it could have been this husband, but his alibi was cleared and it's like, okay, you're not even going to try to connect this other pregnant dismembered woman in the Bay that was snatched weeks before her due date. Yeah. I just don't really understand that. And again, maybe it's because she wasn't white. And also, where are the other five women? What? Where's the information on the other five women? I can't. That's why I don't know if this is true or this documentary is just trying to like free Scott Peterson. But like, I was, I was searching. I didn't search that long. Like, I searched for like a half hour, and like, yeah. I just couldn't really find anything outside of Evelyn Hernandez. Huh. So if anyone has information, and I looked up like Bay Area, not just oh, Modesto, maybe because these women like, just went missing, their bodies were never found, right? Maybe. So so if you if people think that maybe they ran away or whatever, they don't always report on it the same way as like a body. I don't know. And then people and then her wallet washed up as well. Cause um everyone was like, oh, she just went back to El Salvador and then her wallet washed up. But also the sources I found about Evelyn Hernandez are not credited. There's one CNN article, but the rest are all like weird weird blogs. blogs. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like it's not real but it's just like so many articles I mean and we talk about a tale of two killings is like this big thing where it's like 
why was this pregnant, dismembered woman? No one cared about her. And it's one like, more tale of two victims. Oh, and then one of the, uh, there's a bail bonds guy for some reason in, in this documentary. And they're talking to him about Satan and everything. And he just goes, whatever, we're a meth town. <laughs> when you're on meth, you, of course, you're going to see Satan. Like you think Satan's real when you're on meth. And I just loved the way he uh, said it. <laughs> Um, whatever. At the end of the day, no matter what the truth is, it is a tragedy. And what everyone can agree on is this is like really horrific and very, very sad. Yeah. Lisa, thank you for doing truly so much research on this. I knew maybe 10% of what you talked about. So this was very informative for me. And, um, well, yeah, because I think we were all so focused on the story and the vibe of everything that like the facts didn't matter. It was like, of course he did it. Fuck him. Yeah. Well, sometimes it's Occam's razor, you know? Um, I don't know what that means. <laughs> it's kind of like the most obvious thing is the th- is the truth. Like, <laughs> Oh, for sure, for sure, for sure. But they should have brought in Dr. Michael Batten. Yeah. Why is every case not bringing him in? He should be, we have to work him until he dies. We're not going to have him that much longer. Um, okay. uh, all right, I'm excited for our interview. So stay tuned for that. <laughs> Guys, I personally was thrilled when we booked this guest. I have watched her basically my entire life. She was on a show called Life Goes On. I watched as a young person, ER, and you've heard her voice in uh, an iconic movie called A Goofy Movie. But today, we are delighted to talk to her about her role as Melinda Granville. Please indulge in our conversation with the one and only Kelly Martin. Iconic episode. Oh, is it? Oh, Oh, yes. I love hearing that. Oh, I've seen this one. I'd be surprised if it's less than a dozen times. Oh, yeah. Um, Well, I have to tell you, I had to rewatch it because I hadn't seen it since I think it first aired. And I didn't remember if I had done it or not. (laughs) Like... No, I, I don't remember anything about it except that I had blonde hair. That's all I remember. Yeah. You didn't do it, but you didn't not do it. I mean, you you didn't do it, but like you sort of at the end, you know, you saw what happened. When you read the script, do you remember feeling, oh, a twist? Were you shocked a little? I, I was. I was a little surprised. And I was also surprised on my second viewing on just a couple days ago, still that I didn't do it. Like really, <laughs> like I'm in like what I thought was confessing. I'm like, did I was I was really watching it and I did not remember that it was yeah. my mom. I didn't remember <laughs> until until she like recognized it and I was like, "Oh, okay. Wow. So yeah, I just went along for the ride. It is a good episode." And I have to say this show, I mean the show in general, it holds up in a way that other shows from that era don't. Yeah, they were ahead of their time on a lot of issues and what was going on in the world. Yeah. And so, sadly, it's all still relevant and still happening, but it does hold up for our it viewing does. pleasure. Even the pacing, because I, um, I mean, I, I like, actually, I watched Life Goes On, this show I did, like, the pilot recently, and it was from the, the 90s. And I was like, oh, my gosh, it is slow. Like, it's slow. (laughs) Like, it's a different pace of television. But SVU doesn't, they really, it's like still the same pace. It's still very watchable television, even with our 
2022 eyes. Sure. Yeah. And I think the pace is one of the things when people say like, why are people so obsessed with it? I'm like, the pace is like always the same. And like, you always kind of know what you're going to get at this mark. You're usually going to find out who the person is. I mean, some episodes mix it up, but you know, you're usually going to find out and then there's a trial. Like, you know, it's the pace is comforting. Soothing. Yeah. It's like I fall yes. asleep to the rape and murder, but it is soothing <laughs> and it's timing. <laughs> it's soothing. Yeah. No, it's true. And and um, there is some comfort in kind of knowing what to expect in the format, but predictable it's not. So that's, yeah. that's the hard part of making good television and they sure do it. Yeah. Well, speaking of... Life goes on. Kara just gave me the huge news. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Well, so for our listeners, Life Goes On, a show that Kelly was on in the, in the early 90s, an amazing show that I watched and loved, um, with Chad Lowe, a friend of the pod. He's been on our podcast. Oh, good. Um, that you guys are rebooting Life Goes On and it just found a home at NBC. Yes. So, I, I mean, the thing that it's funny, like I'm not like so excited because this has been <laughs> going on since 2019. Oh, Chad geez, and I yeah. initially pitched the idea of revisiting Life Goes On back then. So it's just been such a long process. And I am the most uh, jaded person because I've been doing this so long that when I am on set and I am filming the new version of Life Goes On, I will believe that we are doing it. But yes. yeah, so so Life Goes On has found a home at NBC um, and we're super excited. So it's Warner Brothers, the original studio and NBC being a new place, not ABC where we yeah. were before, but it would be like the same kind of family drama tackling tough issues. Um, and I think the thing that we're so committed to is making sure we satisfy the fans so that, you know, you have Becca and Corky and the, the yes. core will still be there while still making it a new world that makes sense. And Patty Lapone is signed on? Uh, Patty Lapone is very much committed to doing it. Yes. yes. Another so, SVU alum. She is. She's like an everything alum, isn't yeah. she? Yeah. Like, yeah. you can't shoot anything in New York without including Miss Lapone. Sure. Well, <laughs> have course. you seen Chad Lowe's episode of SVU? No, I haven't. Oh. But I have to tell you, do you guys know that Neil Bear was the one? I think he brought me, he brought Chad. Well, that was our question. We're like, hello, ER, SVU. <laughs> That's a Neil Bear connect. That's what it is. I mean, Neil called me and said, would you like to do an episode of this? And it, I think it was maybe the first thing I had done after ER, maybe, because I went back to college after I mm -hmm. got killed on ER. So it might have been my one of my first jobs back. Okay. Um, so yeah, that was Neil. And Neil brought Chad in too. Yeah, and we've had Neil on twice, obviously, a, a legend and so a legend great. brilliant, like so yeah. brilliant and fascinating to talk to him. I I I'm endlessly interested in everything he has to say. Completely. I do need to recommend you watching Chad Lowe's. Um okay. he is a he like puts fingers in his mouth, there's blood, there's it's incest, it's there's murder with pins. <sighs> I mean, it's a really twisted episode. Yeah, you're both in classics from like the first half of the series. Yeah. Patty's in a more recent one. Mm -hmm. Um, but you guys are like in classic apps. I knew Chad had that in him, by the way. He's <laughs> always one of those guys, uh, that you <laughs> he's got some stuff underneath that cute face, doesn't yeah. he? Yeah. <laughs> yes. Have you been friends this whole time since life goes on? So Patty and I have actually been, I mean, Patty is truly my second mother, for, like oh. for, for real, my second mother. And I, all of my important life events have included Patty ever since I met her on Life Goes On. 
Because you were how old? You were like, you were like 13, a, teenage, a 13, 13 when wow. I started Life Goes On. So Patty, like she was at my college graduation. She sang at my wedding. Um, she oh She's just God. been, she's been such a, a an integral part of my life. Chad and I definitely drifted apart, but we kind of reconnected because I, I sought him out um, because I wanted to perhaps get Life Goes On going again. And he was the first one I called and I was like, had lunch with him and we just kind of reconnected it. And now we've been very close ever since. And actually we have a podcast together. Yeah, we saw. So like we've, he's like my work husband all of a sudden now. He's, <laughs> I talk to him every day, whereas I hadn't talked to him for many years. So it's, it's actually amazing to have him back in my life. I love him so much. I love that. I love a, full, a reconnect, a full circle moment. So tell us a little bit about the podcast. So the podcast is called The Big Break and it is about that magical moment that changes an actor's career. And what what we try to get into, we have one guest on per show and we try to get into that surprising big break moment. Not the one that you expect, not the, mm. you know, she did a Vita and that was her big break, <laughs> you know? Because because an actor wouldn't normally, they wouldn't choose that as their big break. It's, right. it's always like, I ran into, you know, a director I really admired and they finally saw me in a different way or my mom said, you got to keep going or whatever it is. So, and so we talk about that moment and then we also talk about the origins of someone's career. So like, obviously, uh, it, it's really funny. Like everyone we've talked to has had such strange origin stories. Like everyone has a different way of getting into show business. Um, it's usually very serendipity. It's not usually like, I planned this and this was my life's goal. Like it mm. really was like, I was spotted by a wedding photographer at, you know, like it, whatever it is, it's just always very strange. So that's that's what the show's about. Um, and we've done 10 episodes. I think five have aired. Patty's on next week. Ooh. <laughs> I also want to know what she sang at your wedding, if that's okay. Yes. I oh was like, is this gosh. too intrusive? But what did she sing at your wedding? <laughs> so she sang two, two songs during the ceremony. But <gasps> afterwards, at the reception, my girl Patty likes to drink, which is part <laughs> of why I love her so much. Uh, she drank a fair bit. And then she got up to sing one song because my father-in-law requested that she sing um, I Dreamed a Dream from Les Mis. Wow. And so she did for him. But then she proceeded to sing eight more songs. Oh my God. <laughs> she did a full concert. Oh my God. <laughs> she sang Don't Cry For Me Argentina. She sang Meadowlark. <laughs> she just did it. So much so that I was like, Wait, it's my wedding day. Yeah, <laughs> we're pulling focus a little bit. And I got married in Montana, and so half the people at the wedding had no no idea who she was. Uh, they just, you know, they, like I re I remember hearing one of the guests go, "Wow, she can she can sing." Like, yeah. no idea, no idea. <laughs> she she could maybe make a career out of it. You should try this. <laughs> wow, that's crazy. Well, your podcast sounds awesome, and. We would probably love it because we ask a lot of our guests like similar questions. Like, when did you know that you didn't have to like that you that you were this was going to work out for you? Or like, mm. you know, a lot of them are like, oh, when the, when I could quit the day job or when, you know. Like, right. Totally. Like we had a guy that was like discovered in a shopping mall, the same thing, and then had to like pressure a manager to take him on or like, you know, all that kind of stuff. So it's, 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 I love to hear about those kind of stories. Um, 
for me, do you want to hear mine? Yes, of course. That was the next question. Perfect. Well, (laughs) I anticipated that. So my, my aunt was a nanny for Michael Landon's children. Wow. So when I was seven years old, um, I, I would often go visit my aunt at Michael Landon's very fancy home because that was a lot of fun. And I was friends with his daughter, Shauna, who was, I think, like two years older than me. So Shauna and I were playing with our dolls one day and I said, with her fancy dolls, <laughs> and I said, um, you know, I, I really, I want to be on your dad's show. And she said, okay. And so like she hooked it up and my aunt kind of figured it out and they got me a meeting with Michael Landon at MGM in his office. And it was, MGM was like the lions out front, like back in, what was it? 1982, the lions out front, like it was old MGM. It was like MGM from the forties, really. It hadn't changed. And um, so I had a meeting with him and he thought I was cute. So then he, like a couple of weeks later, sent me a script and offered me a part, like a little part on his show that he was producing. And I didn't want to do it. Because it wasn't Little House on the Prairie, which was what I wanted to be on. It was called Father Murphy, but Little House on the Prairie wasn't on the air anymore. I didn't understand that. So I was like, no, no, I don't want to do this. And my mom's like, we should try it. So so I did that little part and was really good at it. And from there, I got an agent and kind of just started working. And being a child actor is a very, like at that time, is a very small world. It was all the same kids. So I just started working like all the time. Yeah, who were your who were your child actor kit pals coming up? My child actor pals. Jenny Lewis was oh, on cool. pretty much every audition I went on. I and <laughs> she usually got like every job. <laughs> <laughs> and now she opens for Harry Styles. So I you mean, know everybody's road takes them to a different place. <laughs> I know. And and what's funny is, I mean, she she was truly my nemesis. Like I was friends with her, but I was so jealous of her because yeah, she yeah. really got every part that like I kind of hated her. Like I had this kind of competitive like hate for her so that when I saw her not that long ago, I guess like maybe five years ago, I hadn't seen her in forever. And I ran into her at a, like a workout place, like a workout studio. I went up to her and I was like, hi, Jenny. And she was super sweet and friendly. And I'm like, I love your music so much. And I love that like we've gotten through, like she's like, and she female never hated me. Right. <laughs> it was always like from my side. So um, anyway, I'm, I love her music. I'm super in awe of her. Yeah. And so who else? Uh, like Amy Foster, Emily Shulman, Sully Moon Fry. But then when I became a teenager, it was all of them. It was Leo DiCaprio and like they, Maggie Gyllenhaal. I was mm. in acting class with all of them wow. because it was a tiny little world. Mm. So I pretty much knew everybody. And if wow. your child wanted to do it, are you yay or nay on that? I'm a real nay on that. Um, just because I feel like I got lucky with how... I feel like I escaped with most of my sanity intact. Um, <laughs> but I, I do think it's a it's an adult world that I don't think children... My children certainly need to be exposed to. Um, you know, you just hear and see things that kids aren't supposed to see just because it's a, like, it's an adult work environment. Even if a set tries to make it kid-friendly, it's never truly kid-friendly. So I, I definitely would discourage my children from doing, I have a 15-year-old and a five-year-old. My 15-year-old has zero interest. She wants to be a a doctor. Thank God. So (laughs) 
the five-year-old is like, she's, she's actually, I, I call her like Patty Lapone and Kim Jong-un's love child. <laughs> That's like, she, she would actually be a great little actor, but no. Yeah. Um, I just, wait, just to go back to your last story, I think it's so funny that at seven, you were like networking on play dates. Yeah. <laughs> you were like... Make it, making it listen, happen. Listen, I need to get on your dad's show. What can we, how can we work this out? <laughs> yes. Yes, I was. I was a much better networker back then than I, than I am now. That's for sure. Oh, well, can we get to a little bit more of your time on SVU? Because obviously your career is fascinating. We will get back to it. But we want to talk about the SVU episode a little bit more. So how was working with Shirley Knight? I mean, she's a wonderful a legend. actress. Yeah. Um, it was it was great working with Shirley Knight, though I think I just had like two scenes with her. I mean, that's the thing about these episodic shows. Like you really don't have that much time with, with the guest stars. And especially like if you're in a family, like everybody's scenes are kind of spread out. So it was great working with her. I feel like, I don't know why, I feel like I remember one um, take. I feel like she slapped me in one take. And then I was surprised when I watched it back that she didn't slap me. Oh, they may have done a take of that or something and then didn't use it. I think that might have happened. (laughs) We definitely did like the chewing up the scenery version of, you know, uh, that last scene where she's... uh, yelling at her mom or she's saying those things to her mom and then um her fiance is going to the elevator like i know we did very different levels of that scene to see kind of how big it needed mm. to get i think it got much bigger in some of our takes so what i ended up watching was like definitely muted from what i remember but shirley was great it was really nice to work with her uh it's kind of crazy to work with such a legend it really is i mean yeah. you think about like all the things she's done in her career so it was it's an honor, you know, to to work with her for sure. Wow, what a shame. I would have loved to have seen that slap. <laughs> yeah. By the way, that might have just been in my imagination. I don't know for sure. I cannot tell you. I have I don't such know a if foggy... you imagine Shirley Knight slapping you across the face, though. It probably happened, right? I think that happened. <laughs> Maybe a shove or something like that. <laughs> Also, we we love the wardrobe on this podcast and that we think they do such a great job. We love the nighty moment. I love the uh, nighty moment too. <laughs> yeah. By the way, it was just a moment. It was the fastest because I remember them really wanting this sexy, beautiful nightgown and I'm sure they spent a very pretty penny on it. And it was so quick. I wish they had a better, like more of, of you know, more shots of me in that gorgeous nighty. Yeah. <laughs> With a robe. I mean, it was like, I was like, who wakes up in the middle of the night to talk to police looking like this? It was very... Uh, Apparently, what's her name? Melinda does. Melinda Melinda does. Melinda. Yeah. What's the key to playing a rich girl? Oh, goodness. You know, I wish I knew. Um, I actually, I, I found myself when I was watching it back, I was like, I felt like I was very one note. I would have definitely played that part a little differently now. I felt like the first moment you meet Melinda when she comes in with the flowers with her mom, she's already upset. <laughs> Which I was like, I was watching it going, why am I already playing like what happens later? <laughs> like I really felt like I would do that differently. I would have come in with a little bit, like a little airier, a little bit like, oh, the police are here. Like no big deal. I feel like a rich girl would have been a little bit more like, everything's what fine. What could go wrong? <laughs> yeah. I, I really think that that is how I would have played it now. Um, yeah. I don't know how to play a rich girl. I've always been, I've always been the poor girl next door. So, 
So this episode, you know, our podcast is like we talk about the episode of the show, but then we also talk about the true crime it was based on. We thought that this episode was loosely based on Lacey and Scott Peterson just because of the time that it came out. Like that that ah. case was like dominating the airwaves. Like, so I was wondering if you like remember like shooting this at that time with like the news happening about that or not really. You know, I definitely don't remember that. I think that all the medical aspects of it, I totally credited to Neil Bear and how the whole like placenta is going to rip out like yeah. all of that. I was like, that's so Neil. Um, and the ticking clock of it all really, yeah. I thought worked very, very well in this episode. I love that Chris is like, we have 19 hours left. And the other thing I loved about it was that Chris Malone, what, what's a uh, stabler was like, just going to deliver a baby. Here, she, <laughs> yeah. here he goes. I mean, like, I he got does have like own. 12 of his own. So yeah. we thought, yeah. <laughs> He's like, get me a newspaper. That's going to be the swaddle. I'm rolling up my sleeves. This baby's coming. And I actually was watching it going, Stabler, just give her a couple minutes. I can hear the ambulance. Tell her not to push. Don't push. I was like really kind of invested in it. And he's like, no, baby's coming. I'm, I'm delivering this baby, not the paramedic. How is he going to be the hero if he waits for the ambulance to Exactly. Get there? Because I could see the writers in the writer's room going, but it's such a great moment to have him deliver the baby, even though he really should tell her not to push. Um, and then I also like how they're like, tell us who did it. Was it? Come on, talk to us. And she's like... You know, um, no, but, but great moment. Uh, I also thought it was really great that Benson hands the baby to what's his face? Uh, Daniel, um, Daniel, uh, Daniel, Daniel, Gabe, Gabolds. Yeah. Yeah. The guy who plays, uh, Daniel. So how he, how she puts the baby in his arms and then it's like, this is your baby. You are all she has in the world. So I, I thought that was a really, really good moment too. Do you think they did end up together? Oh, no, 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 no. Oh, no, not at all. Uh, and that guy, Gabe, weirdly, uh, apparently I went to college with him. Oh. But I don't remember it. Yeah. <laughs> don't well, remember it. Well, I wanted it. to ask you about that, too. I When you were talking about how, like, you know, you escaped from the, you know, pitfalls of child stardom, I feel like... I can usually tell when somebody steps away and goes to college for a few years that they kind of have their head on a little bit straight about the whole fame and and act like celebrity thing. So how did that all come about? Were you did you always know you wanted to go to college? Did you do it a little bit like later, or was there like a break in your acting? Like what was that situation? So my college was a real like my college experience was a real journey. I decided when I was in ninth grade that I wanted to go to Yale because that is where Jodie Foster went. <laughs> That's it. That's all I knew about Yale. I didn't know that Yale was a great school. I didn't know anything about Yale except that Jodie Foster went there. So that is, and Jodie was a child actor like me. Not that I was like Jodie Foster. God knows. I mean, Jodie Foster is Jodie Foster, but she was a child actor. She went away to school. She came back. She directs. She's an actor. I was like, That's what I want to do. So that, so really, I just patterned my life after her. So I worked really hard in school, even though I was on set. I went to high school on the set of Life Goes On. I never stepped foot in a real high school wow. for four years. So I worked very, very hard with my tutor. And she knew I wanted to go to Yale. And she knew how hard it was to get in. <laughs> I did not. Um, so that was kind of my goal. And then um, I applied kind of right as Life Goes On was ending. Got in to, um, got into Yale. And was going to go, but then I got another show 
So I had to defer. So I deferred Yale for a year and a half, which uh, they were not happy with. (laughs) Um, But I ended up going after I did this other series. And I was there and I was not there. Like I'd leave sometimes to work. But I I left kind of for a big chunk of it when I did ER. I actually left between my junior and senior year to do ER and never thought I would go back. But then when I died on ER, I was like, I'm all done acting. This is awful. (laughs) I never want to be an actor again. I'm going back to school. But I had been gone from college for so long that I had to reapply and get in again. Oh, my gosh. How did you do that? Okay, great. I, I flat did another application. And ironically, my last year there was my best year there. I made straight A's um, because I was really invested. And I really wasn't going to be an actor anymore. I was going to be an art historian. (laughs) Yeah. Well, I read that in your Wikipedia that you majored in in art history. And so then what happened? Because I I don't know that you're art historianing right now. (laughs) Then I did a pilot uh, that didn't go, but I was like, I like acting. (laughs) (laughs) Being an art historian's hard. Like I would have to like, I realized I would have to go to school for, an, like I'd have to get my PhD for anyone to take me seriously in the world of art history. And that was a long, long time and acting so much easier for me. So I just decided to go back to acting. I mean, I think it's cool that you did something a little bit off of your path. You know, you did, Yale has a great drama school too, but you did something like, you know, totally different. Yeah, I, I think... I, I've been an actor for so long that I needed to do something completely different. And ironically, art history actually has a lot for me. It was, it's easy to enter a painting or a photograph because I think of it as uh, like, if it's a portrait or like a scene with people in it, I definitely picture the scene and the character aspect of it. I just kind of how I come at it. Mm. Um, I'm, I'm a very visual person. I'm so visual that I actually even when I'm learning my dialogue, I've like I have to see it in order to learn it. I can't hear it and learn it. So like when I'm repeating dialogue in a scene, I actually can visualize where my lines are on the page and how big they are. So being a visual person, like that's just kind of like part of the way my brain functions. So it kind of makes sense for me. And I'm obsessed with history, very obsessed with the Civil War right now. Very, very, very into it. <laughs> How do you soak up the your your new the Civil, Civil War, War passion? <laughs> yeah. So uh I think everybody understands right now I'm a real big nerd. Uh when we went into <laughs> lockdown in March 2020, I just decided to kind of like go back to school a little bit. Yale has a bunch of free courses online. Oh. So I like looked up some of my favorite professors and there's just a bunch of courses. And there was, I started with the American Revolution, 24, 25 course, like classes on the American Revolution that were recorded by this amazing professor, Joanne Freeman. And then I started kind of going through and then I got to the Civil War and I'm like, oh, hello, here I am. I took the Civil War class that Yale offered for free online. And now I just finished a Frederick Douglass class. Um, and I'm reading his autobiography, his biography right now. So is this for only former Yale students or anyone no, can just hit it you up? You can take it. If you just go to like free Yale courses, like just Google that. And there's just a list of courses that you can just watch from these incredible professors. And wow. so that's kind of how I got through this like crazy lockdown COVID thing. Is I just pretended I was like, okay, well, I'm not acting. I when I don't act, I go back to school. So that's mm-hmm. kind of what I did. 
I, I mean, I hope I can do it. Knowing myself, I probably would never, but I love the idea of taking a Yale course in my home. Check yeah, I want to do out. it. Well, another universe that you're in that I'm obsessed with, Lifetime, Death of a Cheerleader. That was a big movie for me. Um, how does it feel being in the Lifetime universe? Oh, that was great. I was glad to be in the Lifetime. You know, Lifetime didn't make that movie. No, I that really? Was, I think that was NBC, actually. And then Lifetime bought it and basically God. acted like it was theirs. Yeah, that's how but I know about it. That's a true crime um, movie, Death of a Cheerleader. Uh, hilariously, Tori and I have reconnected recently. Um, she lives in my neighborhood now, which is so funny. (laughs) But the, my whole motivation for that movie was I realized I was playing a real girl who was at the time when we shot it, she was locked up, but she, I knew if she ever got out, I didn't want her coming to look for me because I portrayed, (laughs) portrayed her as a crazy bitch. So I very, was very earnest in my portrayal of her and wanted you to really sympathize with her and emphasize, you know, just really like try to figure out why she did what she did. You know, um, that was my whole goal was to make her not kill me when she came out. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's so good. I love it. And then another big kind of moment, I don't know if you've, have you felt the resurfacing of the Goofy movie and the love of that? And just on the internet, it seems like it's really having a moment again. I, it, I blah, blah, don't even know what to say to this. It's the weirdest thing. I have to tell you, I find it incredibly bizarre because I've spent many years not knowing that people love a Goofy movie as much as they do. Like people send me drawings all the time on Instagram of Roxanne um, and are really, really into a Goofy movie. Wow. And I've been asked to do podcasts and and interviews about the Goofy movie. And I always say to them, I'm like, truly, I have no recollection of of doing the Goofy movie. Zero, like zero. I think I just went in and did some recording sessions. It was like no big deal. And, And then I moved on with my life. So I have nothing to say about the Goofy movie. And I am fascinated by people who love it. <laughs> then, but then I watched it. I hadn't seen it, I think, since it had come out. Since I like, I think, went to the premiere or something when I was like 14. So I watched it and I was like, this is such a good movie. <laughs> yeah, It's so good. It's unlike anything Disney's ever made. It's really like watching like Dawson's Creek. I don't know. Like it's like a teen drama. Like it's interesting. Yeah. And Roxanne's a babe. People love Roxanne. Babe. (laughs) What? Yeah. I had no idea. So I I find it on Instagram and Twitter to be absolutely fascinating how much people love a goofy movie. I love it. So besides the Life Goes On reboot, which we will obviously be awaiting with bated breath, what else? Do you have any other like projects or current things going on that you want our listeners to know about or? Well, I definitely... So the podcast is ongoing. Life oh, sure. Goes On right. will be coming out. I just actually directed a thing that just aired over the Christmas, uh, over December. And that's it, actually. That is all I have going on. Aside what from did you Ra- direct? I directed a movie called Mistletoe in Montana for oh, Lifetime, amazing. starring okay. Melissa Joan Hart as a cattle rancher. <laughs> Another SVU alum. And an art collector. Do you know about Melissa Joan Hart's art collection? I do. Melissa and I are very close well, friends. You guys are close. Okay, so maybe yes. I'll get scoop from you. I just saw it once t- on Tignataro's YouTube show, and I was like, "Wait, Sabrina the Teenage Witch has dollies and Picassos. What is happening?" Like, I, she that's does. so cool. 
She does. She has a lot of them, actually. She has quite an art collection. I'm obsessed. Melissa's not messing. She's not messing around. (laughs) Uh, You should have her on, by the way. She's delightful. And we actually talk about her SVU episode on the podcast when I interviewed her. She's on the first episode of our podcast. And she talked about how it was so hard for her to cry in the ep- in the in the scene because she thinks she's such an ugly crier and she has trouble really connecting with that and she's more of a comedic actress whatever but they really wanted her to cry and i and i actually found that to be the same for me is that in this scene where i'm supposed to when i'm being interviewed by um stabler and benson uh marishka really wanted me to cry and i did not want to cry I decided I wasn't crying. And so <laughs> when I decide I'm not crying, because I'm a good crier. Like I cry. I cry. Patty Lapone taught me to cry. I know how to do it. <laughs> but because Marishka wanted me to cry, I think I just like, for, I was like, forget it. So she kept trying to do things off camera to make me cry. And I was just like, mm, not going to do it. And Melissa kind of felt the same way. She's like, they wanted me to cry and I wouldn't do it. Wow. Because we've had a bunch of people, like younger actresses usually, that have said, I wanted to cry and I couldn't. And Marishka really helped me cry. I think Marishka sees that, that, sees that as her role and wants to deliver that. <laughs> so it's an option in the editing room if they mm. have it, which is very good of her. I found her um, her attempts to help me cry did not help me. In fact, pushed me the other way. So, what was she doing to you off camera to make you cry? There's like a thing actors stuff? do. Oh, okay. There's a thing actors do off camera to help you cry. Either they cry, which maybe sometimes works for some people when they're doing their on camera to cry, or she yell like you will yell at you and try to startle you. And I was like, I know all these tricks. God love her. Honestly, I'm not saying anything against Marishka. It's totally on me because I was like, I've made a choice and I'm sticking to it. Um, even though it's your show, Marishka. <laughs> I, I'm okay with your choice. I think that Melinda <laughs> was probably like, I'll find another poor guy to marry. Let's I, move on. Well, yeah, because yeah. wasps don't cry outward, like in public, you know? I agree with that. I feel like she was a little bit, I feel like she was a little bit kind of dead inside. I, I, I kind of, that's what I went for. So, but you know, sorry, Marishka. Kelly, we love you. Oh my gosh. Like I told my husband about the Yale classes and we'll see. I think going to do them. <laughs> She's cool. I love people that love their work and I love, love child the people actors. they work with. Yes. I love child normal. actors that ended up normal. Like it's fun. It's Went like to fun, college. Yeah. Patty Lapone singing at your wedding. And <laughs> I love Can it. Can you imagine? Patty I just Lepone. love the people that are like, wow, this kid's got it. Yeah. Uh, it's just like <laughs> Miss Broadway. Yeah. No, that's actually so insulting when after shows people are like, don't, don't stop. You gotta keep going. And it's like, yeah, why would I stop? You think it's just <laughs> you that's gonna keep me into this? It's like I've been. I've been 12 years deep just to get to this half-empty club in the middle of the country. What are you talking about? So, obviously, this episode is controversial. I'm taking a weird stance. Come at me. Don't. Let's have a dialogue. Um, Did I just become a youth pastor? So, Kara did... I got red. We'll see. Okay, listen. I will tell you something. I respect Lisa's feelings and thoughts and conclusions. I will say, I did come across a book 
that was, uh, I think, it was, like, written by someone else, but it's, like, from the perspective of Scott Peterson's brother that's called Blood Brother, 33 Reasons My Brother Scott Peterson is Guilty. So, (laughs) even his family is like, nah, he did it. But it's like, I mean... But not this podcaster, not this criminal (laughs) podcaster. SVU, why can't we just have a criminal podcast moment? We don't even have to act. Put us in your fucking show. I know. Well, can you believe the surprise? Because we wouldn't tell anyone we were in the episode. And then we would, everyone would go nuts on Thursday. And on Tuesday, you know, Annalise would have to edit hardcore quickly. Quick turnaround. But yeah, it would be so excited. I would buy us also huffing and puffing in a workout class in the park. Yes. You know, we're doing a workout class in the park and we're like, fuck this. Like, we hate it. We're we're slogging through it. And then there's some part where it's like, run it, like, run down these trails and then we find a body. That is good. That is good. Oh, I you love know? that. I don't think I could top it. I was like, can we be at brunch? Are we walking? Argue? It's been, no one's <laughs> been in a, very few workout classes actually out in the park and we could kill that. We would nail yeah. it. Yeah. Because I went to a little outdoor birthday party the other day and there was just a full, like, huge, loud workout class going on outside. I was like, I didn't realize you could turn anywhere you wanted into a gold gym if you wanted to, (laughs) but I guess you can if you have a loud enough speaker. Oh, I love the person who tweeted being like, can't wait to hear Lisa talk about Amaro's police outfit. And it's like, you guys (laughs) really do know me well. I did definitely mention him in his outfit. Fucking hot piece of ass. Anyways, so rude. No wonder he's not coming on the podcast. (laughs) He probably listened to one episode and was like, "Um, I don't think this is safe for me. (laughs) Not a safe space. I interrupt. It is tragic. You know, we do have fun on this show, but at the end of the day, it is a tragic No, it's horrible. I can't believe how long ago it was. I can't believe that Connor, the baby, would be like, you know, 21 now. Like, that's horrible. But... I think, uh, I don't know what we learned from this. Basically, it's always the husband. Um, but, and cops fuck up. Cops yeah. are bad at their jobs. And because of them, we have weird things. Yeah. Sorry, there's like, we, everything is cops fucking up. But I think this is also a really interesting look at what we're obsessed with. Like, we're obsessed with pretty white pregnant women mis- going missing. Whereas we talked about how the... Was it Wesson, the case of the guy with all the kids that he killed? I mean, that was happening at the same time and barely, like, made a blip, I feel like. And other pregnant women had gone missing. Yeah, Yeah, but not white ones. Yeah. Yeah. So It's just annoying when people don't acknowledge that racism is real, but... Right. Not our listeners. Yeah. (laughs) You know it. all right, keep if it you're, moving. Keep let's it moving. let's move on. Um, what would Sister Peg do this week? Our weekly segment where we tell you guys about organizations or direct you towards books or articles or something that'll give you more info on this case or what we talked about in today's episode. So, uh, if you guys are interested in more info about Lacey and Scott, some people are very taken with this case. There is a book, a New York Times bestseller called "A Deadly Game: The Untold Story of the Scott Peterson Investigation." It's written by a former judge, Catherine Cryer. I love the idea that it's written by someone who like knows the legal system up and down. And it draws from extensive interviews with key witnesses, lead investigators, as well as secret evidence files that never made it to trial to trace Scott Peterson's bizarre behavior. So if you're interested in that, we will have a link to it in our show notes. And as always, all of our What Would Sister Peg Do segments are on our Instagram in the WWSPD highlight. 
Thank you so much for that. We know that I will not be reading this book or any other book, but I, <laughs> but to all of you literate motherfuckers, have at it. And uh, next week, please join us. We will be doing the episode Justice, one of my favorites. I've wanted this one for a very long time. Season three, episode 19. Woo! A hot one. Watch it. Keep up with us. Never watch it. We're so lucky. And see you next week. Bye. That's Messed Up is an Exactly Right production. If you have compliments you'd like to give us or episodes you'd like us to cover, shoot us an email at thatsmessedupppod at gmail.com. Follow the podcast on Instagram at thatsmessedupppod and on Twitter at messeduppod. And follow us personally at Kara Clank and at Glitter Cheese. As always, please see our show notes for sources and more information. Thank you so much to our producer, Annalise Nelson. And to our mixing engineer, Ryo Baum. And to Henry Kapersky for our theme song. And to Carly Jean Andrews for our artwork. Thank you to our executive producers, Georgia Hardstark, Karen Kilgariff, Danielle Kramer, and everyone at Exactly Right Media. Listen, subscribe, and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Dun-dun!